It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw, and that would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And this man, as the head, was over. Unbelievable. Got a mannequin head over, got over in every single character he was ever in. One of the best trainers in the business and also one of the best guys in the business, our friend Al Snow. Al, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you guys very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Now, it's going to be a lot of fun having you on, on board today, talking about head, talking about your characters. <laughs> that just sounds wrong. It just it it sounds does. wrong. Only you, John, would, would say something like that. But it does sound <laughs> a little kicky. You know, like, it does sound a little yeah. weird, doesn't it? But, you know, I mean, there was the greatest, greatest uh, champ back in the history of our business. You oh. know, we won't head. I mean. <laughs> yeah, and if you don't mind, I'm gonna interject. You, know, I, I, you had the greatest, so we won't head. But back in the old days, this is an old Terry Funk story right here. Actually, it's a yeah. senior story, so you know it's going to be good. But told by Terry Funk. Yeah. Anyway, they had this guy in the territory. Guy just started. He comes in. His name was, you know. Jim something, Jim Schultz or something like that. And the old man said, you know, Schultz, you know, let's change your name. And so they said they come up. So he didn't even bother going, he's on first, goes out. Ladies and gentlemen, in this corner, Joe Schitt, you know, S-C-H-I-T-T-S, you know, Schitt. Right, yeah. And of course, during the, during the, during the, let's go shit, let's go shit, you know. <laughs> so, the, so the guy come back is really hot at Vince back, our Vince back, our, our, Dory Funk Sr. for calling him Joe Shit. He said, would you please change my name, Mr. Funk? He said, yeah, I'll change your name. So the next that night he goes in and he goes out to the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, this corner, Bob Shit. <laughs> he changed his name, but yeah, anyway, it goes he back to we won't name. head. Let's go shit. You know, let's go. Let's, <laughs> we won't head better. So Al, thank you. You know. I know, I knew you originally from Lima, Ohio, which is up in the cornfield, right? 
Uh, oh yeah. Well, yeah. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I've been up there through there. I had a friend, I think I've talked to you about Woody, Woody Bell. Matter of mm-hmm. fact, he owned a uh, bell corp softball teams up there and Braun Strowman's old man, dad used to hit softball 500 yards, oh. 500 feet for him all the time. I believe it. I and believe won it. several world championships. The crusher. Yeah. There's, there's some great, I mean, cut you off. There's some great YouTube videos on the crusher. Yeah. He hits a he hit a he hit a ball out of I believe Shea Stadium. Yeah, he did. Really? That was phenomenal. Yeah, mountain of a man. Yeah. He that hit one home insane. run on YouTube, and the announcer is trying to point out the bush that it landed in. He goes, "That bush it was like something like that bush is fifty feet behind the fence." <laughs> he would just destroy a softball. He would just walk out there, man. The guy was a beast too. But it, yeah. it Woody, Woody, Woody up there. So um, I know he grew up with different types. You had you were in a hotbed of television uh, at that time when you were growing up. Sure, you, had, yeah. you what? Did you get the Sheik's TV and uh, what, yeah, what some about some of the TVs that you got? Some of the guys that that influenced. So, um, when uh, when I was a kid, when I was you know younger um, in the early seventies, um, you know, in the mid sixties, early seventies, that was that was Ed Farhat's territory. You know, he had all of he had all of Michigan, he had all of Ohio, he had a little bit of northeastern Kentucky, he had a little bit of western Pennsylvania, and a little bit of eastern Indiana. Um, and you know, it was you know historically the that territory has always been a big money making territory because they've had um, contrary to a lot of other states. I mean, that you know, Ohio, you got like major cities that were. Back in that day, they were only, you know, Toledo was only um, an hour and hour and some change away from Detroit, you know, but, you know, because of the way TV was back then, there wasn't cable. Um, you know, it was a, that was a brand new city from Detroit. You could run a major house show in Toledo and then Toledo down to where I grew up. Lima was a spot show town, um, but we, they still drew probably two, two to 3,000 people in the local ice arena there. And then, you know, Dayton was two hours from Toledo. Cincinnati's an hour and a half from Dayton. Columbus is an hour and a half from Cincinnati. Cleveland's an hour and a half from uh, Columbus. You've got Canton and Akron were an hour and a half from each other, you know. And so you, you could make a loop. You got those West you know. Virginia towns right there, too. You had, the, you had Huntington, you had Charleston. You know that were right there across the border, um, and then I, I think Sheik had Erie, Pennsylvania. I know he didn't go into Pittsburgh, or that was Bruno's territory. Um, and uh, but he went into Erie, and then up in Michigan, you had Detroit, Saginaw, Lansing, you know, um, Battle Creek, um, Cadillac. Yeah, you, you, you know, a lot of big towns up in uh, up in Michigan as well. And it was you know blue collar area, auto the the Rust Belt and. It always made money for for years, and then Sheik went out of business. Went under territory. Went under. I think around seventy four, seventy three, and then uh, we didn't have anything remotely wrestling wise until probably seventy six, when the advent of cable television came on. And you know, you guys will get it. Which was remember back when cable television came on, it wasn't like it is today. You only had thirteen. You only got thirteen channels. It was just now you didn't have to use an antenna to get them and. You know, you, you in, in TBS was the only national uh, channel that uh, you know the the carried, except for I think out of uh, the you know, Midwest, out in Chicago. You know, they had the uh, 
um, the one station over there, WGN, um, was similar to WTBS. And, uh, and then that was when we started getting Georgia Championship Wrestling in 1976. Um, prior to that, we also got Dick, Dick the Bruiser's WWA out of Indianapolis. Um, but then once WTBS hit, you know, they, uh, a lot of the um, other stations started carrying, like they carried Memphis, um, started carrying Memphis in that area. And then I remember Bill Watts was trying to expand and they were starting to carry that as well a few years later. So we started getting exposure to a lot of different territories that normally we wouldn't have gotten a chance to see. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool. Al, if you're a Mork and Mindy aficionado, like I am, uh, you remember, oh, yeah. you remember Jonathan Winters who uh, came in and he, and he aged backwards. He started as an old man and was moving. Yes. Being a baby. He was doing the Benjamin um, button. Yeah, exactly. And so <laughs> you, you and Billy Gunn are the same, aren't you? You're aging backwards, aren't you? What happened? You guys? you guys look like you need to walk on a freaking bodybuilding stage right now. And you're getting oh, bigger and better bodies as you get older. How is that possible? Well, I don't know about Billy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not, in, I'm not insinuating anything. It's a lot of I know, I don't, I don't. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the one, the one thing I did was uh, several years ago, um, I, uh, Honestly, I just, I Googled, I used the, that crazy thing called Google and, um, I Googled uh, old, old strong men and old time wrestlers, like from late 1800s, you know, um, early 1900s. And I saw a picture of George Hackenschmidt and that, if you've not seen a picture of George Hackenschmidt, that guy and farmer Burns and a couple of other guys, I saw pictures of them and I was like, these guys look amazing. Like it was long before. There was anything in regards to knowing anything about protein or carbs or, yeah. um, you know, anything like that. And they looked amazing. And I thought, you know, I'm going to start training like they do. And um, I found by chance there's this um, they've changed the website now, but uh, it's called Golden Age of It's a British website. Um and uh, it could be also under the uh, term, uh, the name Golden Age of Ironmen.com. And um, at the time that I found it, um, they had actually the training manuals that some of these guys wrote, um, like George Hackenschmidt and uh, um, Louis Sear and remember Charles Atlas? Uh, oh, my. Oh, of course. Yeah. And <laughs> uh, so they had to got my money back. <laughs> But they they had all of those training manuals and you could you could download them and you could read them. And so I started doing those things that those guys did. I started training the way they do. And then that was that was it. I I want to ask you about your training, but did did, did I see a video of you doing the Sheik's clubs one time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I use clubs and I use maces and um, yeah, that stuff is just to put over the clubs. You know, Henry Gobbin was a. is but especially back then, oh. he was a bear of a man, a super. He was a monster, monster. I saw him one yeah. day. He, he got the clubs in the garden, and he kind of goes into a room by himself trying to figure out if he could use them or not. But it was his first really? time. That uh, as big and strong as Henry was, he he couldn't do them very well. So kudos really, yeah. you for yeah. He would he would have figured it out, but he didn't. Uh, oh yeah. It was funny because well, he I went see. into a private room so that nobody would see him to see if he could. <laughs> None of the boys could see him. Because he could yeah. press about 8,000 pounds. Just a yeah. question. Do you know if Billy Gunn ever tried those? Did he? I know. Billy, he that'd makes be interesting because Billy was Billy's super strong. 
Oh, he is. He's incredibly strong. But he makes fun of me when he sees he, he's seen me do him. He makes he makes jokes about me. He and his son Austin make make jokes about me doing it. So, so has Billy tried him? No, he hasn't tried him. No, that you I know tried him to, I tried to get him to do it, but he would he wouldn't do it with me. I was like, "Come on, you can. I'll show you how to do it." And he's like, "Oh, I'll just go over here," and he just you did know, what's your training? I, I, I'm involved. I'm involved in high school athletics down here in the state of Florida, and we were doing a wrestling tournament over on the other side of the state, over by where Billy uh, grew up. And yeah. I, had, I had a coach come up to me, the athletic director at the school we were at. He yeah, said, did you ever run across? Uh, Kip, stop. I said, yeah, Billy all the time. He said, well, we know Kip here. He said he owns every record in every sport that he ever participated in here. And he said he was the greatest athlete yeah. I ever, ever yeah. had the pleasure of coaching. I said, how, how come he never played college? He said, because he's too crazy. Yeah. John, do you remember the day we were at TV and Billy – Start raced everybody and I forget what how many different guys like Brian Christopher and yeah I did. a couple of other guys and he outran every single guy in a, a sprint. Um, I remember it was down to the telephone and pole and back. I, yep. and I forget how many yards it was, but he blew the doors off of every single guy on the roster. Nobody could I keep forgot up. Who it was? Somebody pulled a hamstring. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. I remember, but I remember watching the races. Billy was racing everybody. You know, I yeah, saw one time in a, in a like basketball event, you know, it was like, because the Harris boys were good basketball players, good athletes. Yeah. And the Harris yeah, they boys were. were there. Billy was there. Billy catches a uh, a free throw that misses. He comes in from, you know, behind the free throw shooter, catches the ball in the air with one hand and dunks it. And people are like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he's an incredible athlete, you know. Uh, the one time we went to Toronto, um, we did the uh, we played the special needs kids um, in the softball game prior to the show uh, at the fair at the fairgrounds, the Expo Center. Don't and, tell uh, me Billy Sid, knocked over one of them. Oh yeah, Billy and Bob Holly and Sid Vicious were going up and knocking <laughs> knocking home runs out of the park, and I'm like, guys, we're playing special needs, guys. What are you doing? It just come on. It's you know this is exhibition for Christ's sake, and they're just dinging it and just shooting it out of the out of the park and i'm like oh come on man <laughs> we were on a cruise one time you may have been on it down the bahamas and we we played like a volleyball a game oh yeah i remember yeah yeah so if you remember this i think it was shamrock the game got a little close and we're playing like fans and shamrock yeah. spikes a ball and hits some girl in the face yes, <laughs> yes. everybody goes yeah we're going, no <laughs> no no we're playing fans, guys. We don't need to get over. <laughs> Let's put them over, you know? You don't want to be on the other side. No, you don't. They get a little intense. They get a little competitive. I mean, we we were we they were hitting homers on special needs kids. I mean, come on. Just I was like, okay, that's it. I'm not doing this anymore. It's not funny. You're getting carried away now. That's just too much. There's so much wrong with that. <laughs> and this is the you know, I, guys you traveled with al i know I, I, I remember going you know i put the kid over you know let the the kid on third around third and i slowed up purposely so the kid on third could throw the ball to the home plate catcher and then they could throw it back and forth and you know tag me out and when i got tagged out like Billy and Bob and and yeah. they said they all got upset at me and they're like you got you got to, they got you out you got to be kidding me I'm like 
guys, we're trying to make them look good, not us. I mean, <laughs> you can't yeah. look good hitting homers yeah. on special needs kits. I mean, that's just not the way it's going to go. <laughs> Calm down. That is <laughs> I was awesome. like, that's it. <laughs> so I was like, that's this. Is, I don't want to do any more exhibitions. So what's uh, your training regime? I mean, you're not doing, are you doing just multi-joint compound exercises? I just, I try to do more functional and more compound movements um, primarily. Um, I haven't done a bench press in God years. Um, and, you know, just functionality wise, it just doesn't, there's no, unless you're up underneath the car and the jack stands go out, there's no point. You're just going to, you know, lay on your back and push something. Um, I do lots of push ups. I do lots of, the biggest thing that's really changed things for me was doing squats. Um, even non-weighted squats, just people come up all the time and they're like, yeah, it was the one thing I could do. And I'm like, do squats. Um, I spoke to a young man. He was in Nashville. He was, uh, he was the strength coach for the, uh, the Chinese Olympic volleyball team. And he had said that, um, um, they had done a, a, a study, a nine, uh, it was a nine week study. I think it was a 90 day, 90 day study. Um, with and they took three groups of uh, people at a university, and um, they um, divided them up, and they had one group um, strictly work their upper body intensely. One group would work both their upper and their lower body intensely, and then one group just worked their lower body, nothing else. And he said at the end of the of the three month study of the ninety the ninety days, um, the group that worked both their upper and lower bodies had a, a minimal amount of uh, muscle gain and a minimal amount of fat loss from head to toe. The group that um, just worked their upper body had basically no fat loss and real, no, no real muscle gain. And the group that worked just their lower body intensely had from head to toe, the maximum amount of muscle growth and uh, muscle and fat loss of the three groups. So um, that and then when I started reading up on the uh, the old time strongman routines, the the primary thing that they did was that they uh, they didn't work individual body parts per day or anything like that. They trained from head to toe um, every time they trained, and they looked at it more like uh, practice, no different than like if you were to practice baseball or football. They practiced the technique of lifting as opposed to just trying to train a particular muscle uh, group or something. And uh, I changed, that's what, that was the biggest thing that changed for me was that I started training that way. What were their and main exercises? The main, the main thing, one of the, one of the, I forget which, I think it might've been package that uh, I read. And he was, he um, stated in his training manual that um, if you can only train three days a week, um, the three, there are only three parts of your body you should always train. And that is number one, most important are your legs. Number two is your back. And number three is your hands. And that was it. Your hands. Yes. Because without your hands, you, without your hands, you can't pick okay. things up. You can't, you can't maintain, uh, and you can't properly move, uh, heavy, heavy weights. Because remember back then they didn't have straps. You know, they, hell, they didn't even have, um, you know, a, a rack or a bench, you know. So a lot of, you know, like there's a, um, a Milo, they call it a Milo squat. Um, I, um, I've been practicing, which is where you literally put the barbell up 
on its end and then duck up underneath it, put the bar on your shoulders and then basically rack it on your shoulders and do the squats and then set it back down. And with with the Hackensmith also back in those days in the matches, there was a lot of hand fighting going on. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a wrestler, professional wrestler from India, uh, the great Gama. Um, And uh, I think he was like one of like historically uh, back when wrestling was, a shoot and even a semi shoot, you know, he held the record had like 300 consecutive matches undefeated or something like that at that time. And, um, you know, he, the, the, his training regiment consisted of, you know, lots of, you know, everyday squats and everyday, um, what they call, you know, the, uh, the dance, the pushups on the uh, machine board, the, um, it elevates and you do almost like a, like a dive bomber type push up, you know, and then uh, using a mace training with the maces and the clubs. And uh, that guy was, you know, when you look at him, he's a, he's an absolute tank. Beast, yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, he was so ripped. You wonder how these guys back in those days, I mean, great gobble. I mean, holy cow, that's going way back, but he was just ripped. His body was a, a modernized body. It's just amazing. Al, with all the workout, uh, I know nutrition had to pay a pretty good part in, in your... Oh, that did too. I altered how I how I eat as well. You know, um, I've, I've, I've ate, I eat a lot better and I eat a lot more. Uh, contrary to popular belief, you know, the the way to lose weight a lot of times in, in is not starving yourself, but actually eating more frequently throughout the day. And, um, you know, and just, you know, not per se, um, avoiding carbs, but, you know, eating the correct type of carbs and the correct. And I started, you know, following more, a little bit of more dietary direction that those, those guys did too. Cause they, they would eat anything, but they would eat, they would eat a lot and they would eat frequently. And you know, that makes a big difference. How, how, it's interesting how training is going back to that style. Mm-hmm. You know, remember in the eighties, yeah. uh, you know, he had Singletary, he was big on the Nautilus, you know, and guys like right. that. You know, they're going to be in great shape. All they got to do is work hard. And then sure. you have all this other stuff. You've had the CrossFit. Now they're going back to the kettlebells and the barbells and doing the old yeah. school lifts that, you know, it's pretty simple. You know what Arnold and Franco did uh, yeah. works tremendously well. Yeah. And and I think um, Arnold and Franco, too, were like Franco was like a, a practicing strong man. You know, he, he wasn't was, just yeah, a bodybuilder. Very, very strong. You know very 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 strong and um um you know he was in in arnold i think people are you know when you go back and you watch some of the old films of him training well he was moving a lot of weight i mean yeah. really was and remarkably if you consider the size of his height and the size of his frame because you know the smaller shorter guy is going to you know have a little bit of an edge when it comes to those kinds of things but you know and arnold was what six two or six three i think and uh, same with Lou Ferrigno, you know, Lou was six, four, six, five, and he was moving, you know, big, big, heavy weight at that time. You know, Farmer Burns was the coach of uh, Gotch for those out there that were, you know, listening mm-hmm. to get the, the progression of coaches down to the, those great, that Gotch and Hackenschmidt, those great matches that they had to kind of set off the professional wrestling era, which I guess kind of got stopped during, World War One, and of course the pandemic of you know Spanish flu, heard it true, and and then um, you know it had that resurgence after World War Two, you know when uh, the Gold Dust Trio got involved and started to 
basically was the birth of modern wrestling when they started to shoot angles and, you know, try to create some kind of heat between the guys so that they could build up to the bigger matches so they could draw bigger houses back then. Yeah, and that was also what goes TV also was just beginning to get be prolific throughout the United States as well. And wrestling, yeah. you just needed, all you needed really was a hard cam to shoot. You could shoot the whole action. Yeah, yeah. When did because uh, the primary, like, went back to our conversation before we came on, um, you know, about the Dumont Network and you know, and, and Chicago being the in the International Amphitheater. Um, years later, um, I got to to work in the International Amphitheater on a show before it got uh, torn down. So it was really a big moment, really cool moment for me to to get to be there in the uh, actual birthplace of tele- televised wrestling. This year, it's time to get off the couch and get back into the bedroom. Blue Chew can help. Guys, we know that confidence can take you far in life. And when you feel confident, you are at your best, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. They always say first impressions are important. What about lasting impressions? So if you can benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, Blue Chew can help. And we got a special order deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code JBLGB. That's JBLGB at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. The BlueChew.com promo code JBLGB to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this podcast. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Christmas is finally behind us, but are you dreading those credit card bills headed your way? Well, here's a pro tip. Don't get stuck making minimum payments in the new year. Savewithconrad.com can help you get rid of your credit card debt just like that. Oh, and we're going to get you the best deal on a mortgage you've ever had. But how's this for starters? No payments until March. You don't need money out of your pocket or perfect credit. So find out how much money you can save for free right now at savewithconrad.com. This is John Layfield from Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. Mr. Briscoe and I have been around a long time. We've seen all kinds of trends. We've heard all kinds of hype. We heard about stance apparel, about how cool and comfortable that is. The socks, the underwear, the shirts. We thought it was all hype. We are gladly mistaken. It is cool and comfortable, just like us. Founded in 2009, Stance Apparel represents a radical reinvention of socks, t-shirts, and more. With a sharp focus on comfort, quality, and creativity, Stance brings an atypical aesthetic alongside some of pop culture's hottest collaborators for the ultimate in style and self-expression. Because everything you wear 
should be a direct extension of who you are and how you feel. Marvel, Bob Marley, The Goonies, Star Wars, all kinds of, wow, pop culture to adorn this apparel that is cool and comfortable like Mr. Briscoe and I. The stance philosophy is that a perfect fit is more important than simply fitting in. That those who feel good, do good. Go see for yourself. Just head on over to stance.com and pick out whatever styles you like. Enjoy the color and comfort of a life less ordinary with Stance. Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw and Stance, cool and comfortable. Hey, Al, I've read somewhere, I heard one of your your, your awesome interviews with, with a young man the other day, and you talked about when you went down to uh, North Carolina to break in, Gene and Oli's style of breaking people into business. <laughs> Kind of different yeah. nowadays and uh, today's breaking end of the business, right? Kind of run us through that uh, torture session that you went down. Sure. And I know um, both personality didn't hearing you describe it. I mean, I could see <laughs> Gene just twitching his neck and just that eye. Uh, he's twitching. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's twitching. Yeah. Um, at the time, you know, and I don't need to tell you guys, I mean, wrestling was a very closed very uh, secular business. I mean, you couldn't just like today, you know, like today there's, there's such a proliferation of wrestling schools and, you know, you can just pretty much pay your money and take your chances kind of thing. You know, I decided when I was 14, I wanted to be a wrestler. So, you know, back, this was God way before the internet and, you know, nobody would even have imagined it. So I'd, I'd walk to the local library and I'd get, um, I got the phone books the, for like Charlotte and Minneapolis and Tampa and, um, you know, because I would find out where the offices were for the wrestling promotions around the country from Bill Apter's, uh magazines, you know, and then I would just I'd go find the, the uh, white pages for Charlotte, North Carolina. I'd look up Crockett Promotions. I'd get the phone number and um, what I do is once a month I would call the office um, and I would basically ask for one of them to be willing to train me. And of course, you know, the boy, you know, some of the boys worked in the office at the time and they'd either bust my balls or they'd cuss me out or, you know, and after a while they got to where, cause I'd do it once a month. I'd call every office in the United States once a month. I hell I even call Carlos down in uh, Puerto Rico and um, you know, they'd all just, Sometimes if they're bored, they'd talk to me. And sometimes if they weren't, they'd just hang up on me or, or they'd put the phone down and just leave me there. <laughs> you know, my dad would get so mad because of the fact that, you know, that was back when you had to pay for long distance. That was long so, distance uh, calling. Yeah, that was long distance <laughs> calling. And so I was, uh, I was 17 and I called Char I called Crockett's office and Gene answered the phone. Um, and I talked to Gene a couple other times, and unbeknownst to me at the time, and I met Sandy Scott years later when I worked in Smoky Mountain and became good friends with Sandy. Um, and uh, he would answer the phone, and I'd talk to him once in a while, and uh, um, and they'd always blow me off. But then that I reached that, got a hold of Gene probably in May of that year, I think, May of 81. And, um, you know, Gene said, well, we're having a tryout, you know, in October and you can come down. It's $250 to try out. And I'm like, Oh, okay. 
So I, of course, I got 250 bucks. I, you know, I, uh, got a job washing dishes and, and, uh, saved up my money. And, um, I sold my car like an idiot when, now that I think about it, I could have just drove my car, but I bought a bus ticket on a Greyhound bus that took 24 hours to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, cruel and unusual punishment. And, uh, um, got to the bus station, didn't even occur. There was, you know, no Uber, nothing like that. I had to walk five miles out to the old Charlotte Coliseum right. from the bus station and uh, made it out there like the day before on that Saturday and then got up the next morning and walked over to the Charlotte Coliseum. And uh, when I got there, Gene was the only guy that was there. So he uh, comes around and asks for the money. And I take giving money and then he, uh, tells me he's got to, I got to sign this release. So I'd never signed a release before. I was only 17 years old. So he's the only one there. So it says, you know, they got your you money before you signed. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, but who you hold harmless is, you know, I, Gene's the only one there. So I just write Gene Anderson, you know, duh. So there's probably about 30, 35 guys that come down, you know, all come down for this tryout. Um, and, uh, um, Gee, you know, we all get dressed, we get ready. And then Oli shows up with like six guys he's already training. And, um, you know, he starts yelling at everybody and, uh, you know, barking at them. And he's like, you know, let's go out in the back. And you remember um, the old uh, parking lot in the back of the Charlotte Coliseum, the original one. It, if you remember, Jerry, it went across and then it kind of went up the hill and then it went it, in the back of it, it went up a little more of a hill. Then it you know, came it back was down. Like, it was like an angle going up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So we had to go run five miles around the parking lot. Right. So, so some of the guys are already starting to drop off. Like, you know, we're now down to maybe from 35. Now we're down to about 27. They couldn't make it through the five mile run. So make it through the five mile run. I didn't come in first. I didn't come in last, but I made it. Had you trained for this? Fuck no. I did that. I had no idea. <laughs> Tremendous. Tremendous. I had no idea what I was getting into. I had what no idea. What do you think you were going to as a wrestling trial camp? I, look, I I've never know. done it. I didn't know. So, um, but, you know, I was in good shape. I mean, I was a good athlete. And uh, um, we went in. And thank God that was the only thing that made me survive it. Um, the next thing, we all come in and we got to do 500 free squats. Got to do them. So we oh. got 500 oh. squats and I'm, um, you know, now we're, we're, people are starting to drop, you know, and I'm, I'm slowing down. Well, we're not done yet. Um, you got to run the stairs in between the seats of every one of the rows of the Coliseums. You got to go up, come back down, move over, go up, come back down, move over, come back up all the way around. So, and trust me at this point, when I'm coming down the stairs, my legs are about to give out. They're all shaky and wobbly from the 500 squats. Um, and then when he's like, ah, we're not done yet. And then it, everybody gets down on the floor and he's like, you got to do 400 pushups. And I'm like, 400 pushups. <laughs> this guy's out of his mind. I didn't care. Gene did not care how you did it. Only didn't care how you did it. If you just picked yourself up and fell down, you were you were to do 400. So well, that was going on. <laughs> uh, we're starting to whittle more guys away. You know what I mean? I couldn't and, have done that um, in six months. <laughs> it was, yeah, I don't, to this day, I just 
kept me going. I don't know how I might, I was, my body was shaking. And so now they, they, they're taking guys into the ring to try out and Gene's over with us and Ole's in the ring with guys. And he's, I'm listening to him barking and beating guys up. Uh, one guy he's yelling at and cause he's teaching how to belly out a guy, a grapevine is like in a rear chin lock. Right. So he's, he's rear chin locked this guy and is, I remember the guy had long blonde hair, was kind of heavy set. And he's just, he's yelling at him to give up and he's shaking him back and forth. And then Gene is now the voice of reason and goes, wait a minute. Uh, he's unconscious. <laughs> he's not going to give up. So he, he, the guy's bleeding from the mouth because I think Ole broke his jaw. And um, basically, Ole just kicks the guy who's semi-conscious out of the ring. He falls head first on the floor and tells him to get the fuck out of the building. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, like they're killing people now. So you know, what am I going to do? <laughs> so uh, um, if it's not your turn yet to go in the ring, you got to put some money on your back and you've got to run the length of the Coliseum and back. So <laughs> I can, of course, get some. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep moving. So I get this guy, it's like 300 pounds, of, you know, and I'm like a buck 80, buck 90 at that time. So what, for me, it's nothing for him to run all the way down and back. When I put his fat ass on me, it's, you know, I'm sh literally my body, whole body is shaking. And um, so <clears throat> if it's still not your turn, you got to do jumping jacks till it's your turn. You get in the ring. Ole comes up and immediately just starts yelling at me. And uh, I forgot to mention, I'd gotten the the uh, the name of Jim Lancaster, who was uh, he was like a journeyman pro wrestler. You know, he had he'd been in Memphis. He'd he'd been Charlotte. Oh, you probably know Jim. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Dale, yeah, big bigger guy was you know good he was guy. Big, yeah. He was a big, yeah, good guy. He kind of went into semi-retirement and, and, you know, was starting to look to, you know, start running outlaw stuff on his own. And, um, and uh, I, you know, I'd went, I'd spoken to him before going there and he just, he was like, nope, I ain't got no interest in training people. And, you know, tried to get me to go to Al Costello out of Detroit because Al, Al was starting to train guys. And, um, and then I just happened to get a hold of Gene. So when I told him, I said, I was going down to try out. He said, well, tell them I said, hi, I go, okay. So Ole comes in and starts yelling at me and just, I mean, he's up in my face and I'm like 17, you know, and here's Ole Anderson. He's just, rah, 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 rah. what's, he, what's go, he yelling? He's just, he's first, he calls me Columbus because he can't remember my name. So he just keeps calling me Columbus because it's the only town he knows in Ohio. So he just keeps <laughs> calling me Columbus. And, uh, and he goes, have you ever wrestled before? And I go, yeah. And then, you know, I'm about to tell him and he just cuts me right off and he goes, you know, why do you want to be here? And I give him, start giving him the answers and he just cuts me off and I go, Oh, by the way, and Jim Lancaster's real name's Jim Painter. Right. So only doesn't know him by Jim Painter. He knows him by Jim Lancaster. And I go, Hey, Jim Painter says hi. And he goes, I don't know who the fuck that is. Get down. And I'm like, okay. So <laughs> immediately. I've got to get down on all fours in the, you know, in the, in the referee position, get down on all fours in the amateur wrestling. And then what he's doing is you've got to make it through all of the guys he's training. And like the, the smallest guys, my guy, my size now, you know, I'm like 17, a hundred buck 90. So I, I, to this day, I, I swear to you, I don't know how I did it, but 
I get down, the guy gets behind me. He's supposed to belly me out, grape by my leg, rear chin by me. I sit out on him. I get away. Ole flips out, starts <laughs> screaming at the kid. He gets, get down again. I get down. He gets me another guy and then another guy and another guy. Finally, he gives me this. This guy's just, he's just gassed up to the gills and he's just swole. And he gets me down. He puts me in a rear chin lock. And somehow I get back to all fours and Ole's upset. And he's yelling at me, screaming, do you want to give up? I probably would have, but I couldn't say anything because my jaw was clenched shut. So, um, puts me on the, put the guy again and, I'm exhausted. My body's shaking. And uh, the guy gets me down this time. Gets great vibes my legs. Got me in the rear chin lock. And he just keeps remembering. I remember he keeps going, you want to go home, Columbus? You want to go home? And I wanted to say yes, but I couldn't say anything because the guy had me in a rear chin lock. So <laughs> he took that. He took that as, well, I guess you're a badass, huh? So you're not going to give up. And I'm like. I guess, I guess not. I didn't know what else to say. I was confused and I was exhausted. And so it, up to this point, every other person only personally took and would basically stretch at this point. He'd beat him up and then send him out. He broke, you know, the one guy's jaw and he, he you know, a couple other guys. Well, because I had signed Gene's name to the paper, Gene rolls in reluctantly and then I, you know, I get yet only yells, get down, get down. So I get down on all fours and I'm again, physically, I'm just shaking. I'm just running on adrenaline. And then uh, Gene gets on me and only goes, go. And the next thing I know, Gene starts pulling my hair. He's fish hooking me for real, like digging his fingers to where he splits my gums and tears my mouth. And he's and I didn't know it until later. And when I get back to the hotel, but I had bite marks all over my back where he, he bit me. you. He bit me. <laughs> he bit yes. you. He bit me. How was Gene? And <laughs> uh, yeah, Gene was. Oh, I can. I can see. I can see that. I, I've. I've seen oh, he you. was. He <laughs> was ripping and tearing, and so I'm trying to fight him. You know, trying to fight him. And we roll over by the ropes. He slams my face into the bottom rope, which was, you know. Jerry, I don't need to tell you, it's just steel aircraft cable with hose over it. He breaks my nose. We're still rolling around. And then all of a sudden, I feel a hand try to grab my balls. And my <laughs> balls just kind of move over to the side like, eh, we're not doing that. And so I grabbed his. And I grab him and I squeeze him as hard as I can. And we're flopping around on the mat. He's yelling. I'm fighting for my life. And then he rolls me over on my back and puts his thumb in my eye. And he's like, do you want to lose your eye? Do you want to lose your eye, kid? Now Ole becomes the voice of reason and steps in. And, okay. All right. Let's calm it down. Let's calm it down. And, uh, gets Gene up and, and I get up and Ole just basically says, get the fuck out of my ring. I got blood just pouring out of my face. And Gene kicks me in the ass as I go through the ropes and I fall out of the ring and land on the floor. And, Walk my way back and clean myself up and came back. And what out was the point of the tryout? I mean, was there there you made there it was through. one kid, there was one kid apparently, and I the only he made he was a, a, a really awesome athlete, and the one kid out of about 35 guys um made it through. Um they they liked him, only liked him and sat him over to the side. And I I didn't know. For years, like I met Sandy Scott in Smoky Mountain and then, you know, 
this came up and he was asking about it and I told him about it. And I said, there was one guy that kind of, you know, was a, a, a black kid that, that made it through. And he goes, Oh, you know that. Okay. Because apparently, you know, cause there was no schools and nobody had a ring. Ole would bring guys to like those that group of six, he would bring to the local YMCA and then they would train on the mats at the local YMCA. And this one kid, Sandy said he remembered that kid showing up for like a week or two. And then Ole basically stretched him to the point to where he quit and he never returned, never came back. So out of, out of the 35 plus guys, one guy made it through lasted two weeks and then was never seen again. Never heard you, from made it. you made it. That's what counts. <laughs> yeah. I and remember you know, $250 couple, for this. At 250 you know, bucks. I, I, yeah. I've, I've seen well, wait, wait a minute, Jared. Then, then you still had to get back to uh, Ohio, and right? Then, oh, my God. Then that was the worst because the next day, after all of that, all that, all that, all the muscle soreness kicked in and the where I got bit and I got beat up, all kicked in. I so can't I believe she bit you. He bit me multiple times. I had bruises all over my back, bite marks in my back. <laughs> I had to walk five miles back to the bus station and then take a 24-hour bus ride back home. And then um, I had broken nose. And I uh, I remember coming in the house and my dad's like, oh, my God, what the hell happened to you? And I couldn't even explain it to him. And um, um, I couldn't, my legs were so sore from doing all the squats and the running and all that. I couldn't go to the bathroom upstairs. So I basically had a milk jug downstairs that I would pee in. And then if I had to take a dump, I would drive to the gas station and I would use the gas station facilities to wow. take a, take a dump because I couldn't make it up the stairs. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty interesting run. That's you, for sure. you even called Malenko down here in Florida, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I called Malenko. I called uh, Eddie Graham. I called um, um, I called uh, WWE the office front office for WWF at the time. I talked to Howard Finkel a couple several times, and one um, <laughs> that we we had we had uh, after he he told us about calling the early days, and this is this is WWE. I mean, you call yeah. the WWE office here, you think, man, you know, I'm gonna get a secretary, I'm gonna get a receptionist. Oh. And Howard Finkel answers the phone. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I called Vern, um, and I would I would speak to Wally Carbo, you know, in the office once in a while. Once every once in a blue moon, I would get Vern on the phone. I called uh, Bill Watts, and I would uh, I'd talk to Bill's wife, or I'd talk to Bill. Um, and uh, I call I spoke to Paul Bosch occasionally. Um, called out to L.A. and would speak to Tullis and those guys, you know, um, those guys, and. Um, I just called every company in the, you know, every, every, uh, territory in the business at the time and, you know, called down for Fritz. I talked to Fritz and all of that. And they just, they just laugh at me and, you know, you know, <laughs> just try to, yeah. And then I'd be, oh, well, I'll call you next month. They'd be, yeah, sure. Kid, whatever. Click. So, uh, next month, Jim Lancaster, call. once, once you got back from, uh, the, the torture rack and, and the Carolinas, um, you got a hold of Lancaster. Do you, do you, is that when you got? I got a hold of. I got a hold of Jim, and um, Jim wanted to. You guys remember Spike Huber? Yeah, I remember Spike. Remember him? So Jim started was starting to run his own promotion, and he was you know kind of trying to affiliate himself with Dick the Bruiser, Dick Athlas. And Spike was Dick's uh, son-in-law at the time, and Spike was actually 
he was getting pretty over, you know, especially in the Midwest. And of course, you know, it didn't hurt that Dick was pushing him, but, um, and, uh, Jim was going to run a, a, a show and he had Spike as the head headline guy. And then Dick, without telling him, pulled him and sent him to St. Louis for Muchnik. And, um, Jim got upset and he decided that he wanted a crew of his own guys that were on, that he could control and that he could rely on and not have to go farm out to get other talent. And so that was, he changed his mind and he decided he wanted to train guys. And that was why he was willing to train me. So when, when he agreed to train me, um, I had just graduated high school and, um, and this was like in, in December of that same year. And, um, we, of course, you know, he didn't have a ring. He didn't have pads. He didn't have anything. So I, uh, I called the high school where I graduated. I talked to the athletic director. Um, wrestling season was on at that time. And I said, Hey, after the, you know, the wrestling team gets done, can we use the mats to train? And he said, yeah, sure. No problem. So I, I show up the very first day for training. That's all I care about, you know, and it had snowed that day. And I had no idea that they had canceled school. And, um, I'm walking around the building and I find a door that's kind of propped open because it had snowed and I walk in. Well, when I walk in, um, it's near the gymnasium. I set off the alarm, the silent alarm. Well, then two policemen show up with guns drawn and are screaming at me to get out on the floor. I'm like, Hey, I got I'm supposed to be here. And I tell them the whole deal. They make a call and, um, you know, find out that, you know, the athletic director said yes. So the next day I find out that we can't use the school anymore because the athletic director got heat from the principal for um, <laughs> me getting arrested or almost getting arrested. So so, how did, did you think about not getting in the business? You got bit by Gene Anderson. You got a gun pulled <laughs> on you the second time. I mean, you think yeah. this, this may not be my line of uh, work that I need. No, nah, too dumb. You know, never <laughs> occurred to me. Never occurred to me. So. You know what was amazing was back, I've seen guys do it, you know, and I know you guys have seen it too, like Gene and Oli did. It's one thing if if you're making it really hard to see who's going to make it, you know, to kind of test their metal and stuff, but just to take their money and run them off. And I always thought that was just a rotten way to do business. And I thought guys who did that is scam artists and and I got no respect for it. Well, I think well, that's the whole thing. I mean, you, you like Al, you you paid. I don't know what you paid, but you you took a yeah. runs right all the way to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, for a tryout camp. Now you think you're going to yeah. learn something along the way. The only thing you learned that you you learned there's bullies in the world, and and, and well, yeah, met up with two of them there. But you know, I, I can now later in later years, I can kind of understand a little bit. Um, they did what they did because, you know, each and every one of those guys who left that day, I guarantee you were like, Oh, you think wrestling's fake? Well, here's what I had to do just to try out. You know what I mean? And, um, and it made people appreciate and respect it a little bit more. And, um, you know, because I like, like we've talked about, I mean, wrestling, um, has always been maligned and treated like it's the redheaded stepchild of entertainment when it ain't no different than anything else. Um, you know, but we've always been kind of, uh, shit on, you know, like we're some kind of carny backwoods, you know, thing that only, uh, people in overalls kind of like, and nothing can be further from the truth, you know? So I think that's why they kind of made it as hard as they did so that when you left there, you could go and, 
you know, put the business over to other people that, you know, well, if you think this is fake, here's what I had to do to just even try to get in type of thing. Um, so I can, I can understand it to a, to a, to a, to a point, but I do understand your point too, John. I mean, it's kind of, you know, they were asking people to pay it. I mean, if there were 35 guys there at 250 bucks a pop, they'd right. get paid. Yeah, they're making, you know, <laughs> and like, like yeah. Brad Rangans or, you know, who trained me, uh, you yeah. know, or Hero Matsuda who trained so many guys. He, he treated them, you know, they, they worked these guys to death. Brad Rangans worked sure. to death, but we knew that there was a, a program to get us through. You know, it wasn't just, hey, sure. we're, we're going to run you off and, and take your money. We're going to no, we're we're run, run you off if you don't, you can't make it. And a lot of guys sure. it because it was so tough. But and they were and were they were training you for a skill. They just weren't training you to beat you up. I mean, that's just, right. Yeah, they can beat you up. They, yeah. were actually, they were actually training. That that's where I get to disconnect. And we did it down here in Florida too. I, I like I said, I watched I watched Gene and Ole do that, and I was always yeah. chastised because I wouldn't do. I I tell you what, I'll do. I'll go in and I'll blow the guy up, and then you guys can do what you want to do. But I'm I'm not going to beat a guy up for no reason. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, you know, to, I remember there was a, a guy, I don't know how he got in there. There was this guy, it was a Mark. Um, I remember what he looked like. He was kind of a, about a five, six, five, eight, fat, roly poly guy. Um, uh, and he was making fun of all of us that were basically there trying out and we're getting our asses kicked and only finally had had enough and went over and started cutting a promo on this guy. Um, the guy was on the, the stairs. Remember, as you get down to the floor, there were like that last three stairs or whatever yeah. there yeah. And that go, before he went down onto the floor. And the guy's standing up on the stairs and um, only had had enough. And he started cutting a promo on the guy and talking about how at least, you know, we were in here trying and this guy was just running his mouth and then grabbed him by the belt and started headbutting him into his gut because the guy was up on the steps and Ole was down below him. I'll never forget that. And he starts headbutting him, just pulling the belt and broke his guy's belt, tore his pants, and the guy and the guy's like, is the wind knocked out of his Ole's headbutting him in the in the belly? And the guy collapses on the step and only finishes cutting a promo on him and walks off. And the guy's laying there trying to catch his breath, pull his pants back up. You know, you've mentioned about 13 felonies. <laughs> you witness to. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was before I even got in the business. And then after that, it was just. Smooth well, okay, so you, you go back home uh, and, and you and you get trained yeah. a little bit. Uh, how? Where's that first step? Where? Where? Where's? And my uh, first and match. Where's uh, Al Snow? Where's Al Snow come from? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> so um, Al Snow comes from um, when I was a, 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 a kid. Um, I had my best friend um, from. Uh, from you know i probably we met when i was we were probably three or four years old and we were friends all the way through through high school and beyond um and uh his name was victor lewis um victor was black and so i grew up basically going over to his neighborhood hanging out with him and i was usually the only white kid in the neighborhood and that was where the snow thing came in because they would always call me Snow White or Snowball or, <laughs> you know, Snowman. And, you know, they were making fun of me, but it just became a nickname and uh, it kind of stuck. 
And then, you know, Al, because my, my real name's Alan. So I didn't, honest to God, like I did not want, you know, because you had to be the guy that you were in the ring. And I thought, well, I'm not going to give myself a name like David or John or Jack or, um, or Bob and it not be my real name. And somebody comes in the locker room and starts going, Hey, Bob, Bob, what are you doing? And I don't acknowledge it because I think I forget the fact that it's my fucking name. You know what I mean? So, um, so I just shortened it to Al and, you know, used snow because it was, that was a nickname I'd had, um, from being, from being a kid. And, uh, um, and then I had my first match, uh, to and the Fullers started, got on, um, Memphis TV and they started trying, they wanted, cause a lot of, a lot of places, remember the Murnix, um, with WCW only wanted to run Ohio and Michigan and uh, West Virginia and that territory for a long We're time. running out of Georgia. Yeah, but running out of Georgia. And, and he, and, you know, he'd have the Murnicks run as, uh, be the agents, you know, the road agents. And uh, I actually, I got to work, you know, whenever WCW um, or Georgia Championship Wrestling came up through Ohio and Michigan and West Virginia, I always worked the undercard, um, you know, because they, Jim had reached out to J.J. Dillon and, JJ would book um, myself and and Jim and a couple other guys, local guys, to work the undercards on the house shows so they could, you know, save money by not having to pay for trans for guys to come up just to work the underneath. So I would, I got, you know, um, I ended. That's how I ended up sitting across the locker room a couple of years later for Molly and G, just sitting there smiling and then not realizing who I was, didn't care, you know. And I'm just sitting there like, uh huh, I still got in. So, um, <laughs> did they didn't but, uh, remember at all, Al? Oh, uh, they didn't remember me at all. Not at all. I sure remember Gene, though. All those bite marks across the back. <laughs> I can't believe he bit you. I can't believe <laughs> he, he bit, bit you. Multiple times, multiple <laughs> times bit me. I didn't, couldn't even believe it either. I couldn't feel it because of the adrenaline. And then when I got to the hotel and, you know, I turn around and look in the mirror and I go, Jesus, what is all that? And I've got like just black and blue marks all over my back where he bit me. So uh, he bit me hard too. Like he drew blood a couple places. So, um, <laughs> cause Gene wasn't a shooter, you know, he wasn't a hooker, you know, and Ole was the hooker, you know? So that's why Ole was, you know, he would stretch guys and Gene would just stand outside the ring. And of course, because I put Gene's name, Gene like would just idiot. beat the hell out of guys. Right? Yeah. And Gene just beat the hell out of me. Yeah. That was what he did. Yeah. Light you and pull your eyeballs out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I got uh, the Tillays started running Ohio because they had TV off of Memphis up in Ohio. And um, I got booked for a 20 man two ring battle royal in Springfield, Ohio, and uh, Austin Idol and uh, uh, Al Perez. That was where I first met Al Perez. And um, uh, the moon dogs, Randy Rose, uh, Norvell Austin, um, got a Rick McCord. Um, they were all in that battle Royal and, uh, they kept me in the first ring for a little bit. And I was like, wow, I've been here longer than I thought. And then boy, by the time, when I get into the second one, Al just, Al Perez grabs me and right out. I went and that was it, you know? Um, and that was the that was my very first match. And then two weeks later, I worked with Kerry uh, Von Erich and then uh, Hercules Hernandez on uh, at the Chase in for Muchnik and started making the you know started working house shows and 
going to the TVs, you know, basically being a job guy, going to the TVs to get started, you know, uh, going out for Vern and um, going for Muchnick and then Geigel and then going up into um, Windsor for George Cannon, um, which that's, that's a good story. I remember you guys remember um, um, Moondog uh, Rex, yeah, um, the big one. Right. Yeah. And, and um, when the, when the moon dogs and uh, uh, in, in Canada, because, you know, he was out of, uh, he and his brother were out of, I think Nova Scotia and uh, they called him sailor white was, was his name up in, in Windsor. And uh, um, he and his brother loved working with his brother. Brother never touched you. You do things to you. He sailor white would beat the living piss out of you. And I remember uh, I'm working TV um, for George Cannon, and um, it, they're like, "Okay, uh, you and Bubba Hawkins, this other kid, he was a local kid out of Detroit. Um, you guys are going to work with uh, Sailor White One and Two. And just before you know, I'm down in the uh, in the TV station. I see uh, Bobo Brazil and uh, Sailor White are sitting there, and they have already downed like a bottle and a half of crown Royal um, sitting in the locker room drinking, you know, and sailor goes out. He's, you know, at least 350, 360, and works with this local guy, job guy, big splashes and breaks the guy's ribs because he doesn't hold up on him or anything. He just hits him with all his weight. And um, so me and Bubba Hawkins to this day, I still don't know what took place. Because, you know, it, it, nobody had, if you remember, guys, nobody had IFBs back in. The referees didn't get time cues. The way you, like the one time I worked for the Pafos, we did TV. And the only way you knew when to go home was when a guy would come out from the locker room with a towel around his neck. And the referee would see him standing. And then he would give the Iggy, okay, it's time to go home. That's your TV time, you know. <laughs> um, the, and, uh me and Bubba Hawkins worked with it, and it must have been how many different ways they could beat us before TV time ran out because they <laughs> would they pin us, they'd make us submit, they would just it was one thing after another. It was probably the longest ten or twelve minutes of my life because it, it, Sailor White would just beat the living crap out of you. So um, we're sitting in the back, and they're about to do they want to do this big angle. So this one of the TV guys, one of the local producers, comes in, and we're all sitting there watching the monitor. And he goes, uh, hey, uh, hey, they're about to do something with uh, Sailor White. He's going to attack Bobo Brazil. And I go, oh, he, uh, he's going to just beat him up. And he goes, no. And he's got this. It looks like a shillelagh. That's the only way I can describe it, like a five-foot-long, just giant wooden knobby cane. And it's big. And he goes, yeah, he's going to attack him with this. And I'm, immediately I make a mental note. That's not good. And... He goes, uh, when, when I need you, I'll come running in here and you guys come run out and you guys, you know, uh, you know, try to make the save, but, uh, Sailor White's going to basically lay all you guys out. And I'm thinking to myself, he's not laying me out. Not with that stick. <laughs> I just worked with him and he beat the living piss out of me with his hands. I can't imagine what he's going to do with a stick. So there's a, a guy called the little lumberjack who's sitting right beside me. He's maybe five, four. And then he looks at me and goes, I'm not going out there. I go, well, I'll tell you right now, I'm not going out there either. He goes, well, you got to go out there because I'm not going out. I go up. You can say whatever you want, but I am not going out there. <clears throat> so the guy comes running back. You know, he's, he's Sailor White's jump Bobo Brazil. Bobo Brazil's down on the floor. 
and he goes, he comes, he goes, come on, guys, I need you, I need you. So everybody gets up and just starts running. And I look at the little lumberjack. He goes, I'm not going out there. I go, brother, I'm telling you right now, I'm not going out. And so he kind of gets this resigned look on his face. And he runs out. I never made, that was the best decision I have ever made in my entire <laughs> life. He, Sailor White's standing there using this like a baseball bat and people are running and he's just hitting oh. them. Boom, boom, boom. I watch one guy run in, grab the end of the stick and almost for a second, you can see on his face like, ha like I thought Spartan you. And Sailor White just takes the other end and goes, boom, and hits him <laughs> and drops him. And um, Greg Wojcikowski finally runs out, um, the great Wojo. Oh, and, um, yeah, he was, uh, was going to go to the, uh, I think it was the 19, I can't remember the Olympics he was supposed to. And, 88. And he, 88. And he was a heavyweight. Yeah. yeah. yeah he, was, he was a strong contender for a gold medal in the wrestling. That's where the boycotted. Where the boycotted. Yeah. And the boycotted and couldn't do it. And I remember Dr. Jerry Graham Jr., got uh, brought Wojo into the professional wrestling business and uh, Wojo was a great guy, but he's man, Toledo, he was, right? Yeah. He's from Toledo and you know, um, he could, he would definitely potato you. I mean, he was, he couldn't help himself. So he runs out and he, and as he runs in, I see sailor white, take the stick over his head and he puts his arm up like this, and Sailor White just hits him right on the arm and breaks his arm. Oh my God. I'm like, oh, my God. This is all done. There's just bodies laid everywhere. And who makes the save but George Cannon, the promoter? Gets cry up. Cry Baby Cannon. <laughs> cry Baby Cannon. George Cannon's five foot two by five foot two. He's just a ball. He gets up and begins to belly buck um, Sailor White. And to the point where his pants start falling down as he's trying to hold them up and he's belly bucking and they shoot the angle that in Cobo Hall, they're going to return with Sailor White versus George Cannon for the main event. <laughs> and I'm like, even then, I'm like, this is terrible. <laughs> and, but thank God I did not run out there because I would have just been one of the many. What an introduction you that. had to the business in your first couple of years in. Oh, it was, it was good. Later that night, we went to Detroit. We went to some rat's house in Detroit and, and, um, I pull up and there's Malcolm, sweet daddy, Malcolm Monroe, um, about 315 pounds. And he's only, only black man at that time I'd ever met that had his hair dyed white. Cause it was like sweet daddy Seeky. Remember Seeky? Yeah, sure um, up and oh, how athletic that guy was. Wow. Remember he could throw a drop kick and flip and land on his feet. He was, he was phenomenal. And, uh, so Malcolm's, you know, trying to take a little bit of his gimmick and we pull up in the, in the neighborhood and he's getting dressed in like the leisure. This was in early eighties. So the seventies were still like leftover fashion and he's putting on the, the blue and white checkered leisure suit with the big lapels. Yes. Yes. The big lapels. I love the big the, yeah, big lapels. Oh, those were horrible. The big, <laughs> the big stack. You had two the big of them, stack shoes. Yeah, of course I did. You were to the prom. <laughs> oh yeah, I had the bell. I had the, the lapels and the bell bottom jeans. Oh yeah, I never forget that. And then he he we walk into the party and two of the boys disappeared. One of the boys disappeared in the 
in the the girl's uh, bedroom comes out dressed in her clothes and he's, the other guys. And you still wanted to be a wrestler. Yeah. And they're stuffing <laughs> hard boiled eggs up his ass. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm like 18, 19 years old. I'm like, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> this, is, this is insane. One time, <laughs> Al, we got a feed in for a big show. And, you know, Big Show was safe as he could be, as big and strong as sure, he was, yeah. safe as he could be. I love working with Show. But they had fixed yeah. a ring where Undertaker, I think, was going to get choke slammed through the ring or something like that. So they had made it, like, really hard around the where the, where the hole was. It was like yeah. concrete. And so I'm the one that's got to feed in first. Ron's next. I get choke slammed and I get hit on that bracing uh, that's right next to the hole. It, I hit so hard, my earrings popped out of my ears. <laughs> when, I hit, when I hit, I'm like, he broke me. He actually broke me. And Ron goes, Ron goes to get up to feed. I go, don't do it, Ron. Don't do it. Ron goes, oh, thank you. And rolled out. <laughs> did he did it really? Yeah, I saved, yeah, I saved Ron. I don't, yeah. No reason for two APA members to be dead. <laughs> I Big show is so strong. I remember one night on a house show we were working and, um, I, I told him, I said, you know, um, he was on his knees and I was working on him as a heel. And I, I, I told him to grab me and to press me. And he pressed me over his head and I said, stand up. And he was able to, from a, from being on one knee and one foot while he's pressing me over his head, stand up and then press me on up. And he was incredibly strong, just astounding how strong he was, you know? I Just played amazing. golf with him quite a bit. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, crush uh, Brian Adams he used to just yeah. always got him with the uh, golf bag where you pull the strap off or you pull off on the golf cart and the golf bag falls, you know, the right, ball yeah. everywhere in the clubs. Yeah. Where he did that sometime to him every round. And Big Show thought it was just, he loved crush. So he thought it was just funny. But Big Show, <laughs> Big Show was, as you can imagine, was not a great golfer. But occasionally right. he would hit one, and it would go like 500 yards. It's like, I believe it. <laughs> you just knocked I the air out it. of a golf ball that doesn't have any air in it. And the sound hey, of the thing had to be just phenomenal. Oh. Like a shotgun, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I, met, when I, first met Kim, I met Kim Patera because that's another guy. Like He's the only guy – because, you know, Mark Henry is incredibly strong. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the boys, you know, lots stronger than a lot of people imagine. And um, I remember meeting Kim Patera back in the early 80s. And he's the only guy I ever remember meeting and going to shake his hand. And, like, it felt like electricity coming off of him. He was that <laughs> strong. I'm not kidding. I mean, it's just insane how strong that guy was, you know. You know, it was um, amazing. We had some really strong guys back then. You had Kazmaier, who was the strongest guy in the world by far. Yeah. I remember he's throwing those yeah. beer kegs, throwing them into the truck when everybody else was carrying them down and pushing them. And we had Tedar City, too, in, uh, yeah. in Texas, wrestled quite a bit. Yeah. First guy to bench press 700 pounds raw. Right, yeah. And and Ken was the first one to put 500 pounds over his head, you know, in the Olympics. You know, he was – he was in, it, a lot of the boys, I don't – you know, people don't realize just how – um, really strong. A lot of the guys were Mark Henry here in OBW. Um, I forget who he was working with at the time in the training, they were training and Mark had just gotten, uh, gotten his hair braided and it was real tight. And they, and whoever it was, I forget who it was, hit him in one of the, one of the braids. And like, he got so mad and he went to swing at the guy and the guy dropped, I mean, fell. If he had fallen, he'd have been dead. And Mark <laughs> hit the top rope with his fist. 
and broke the, you know, the pig ring, the iron ring that holds the turnbuckle to the, to the pad. He broke that and broke the rope itself, hitting it in the middle. And if he'd have hit that guy he'd have killed the guy, he would have just killed him. He was so mad though. He hit the rope and literally broke the, broke the cast iron ring and broke the rope itself. By he hit, may have been by there one it. time when Arn Anderson by mistake had put his bag in a locker and the, you know how the combination lock, you know, you have a lock, it, it locked and they're trying to get the, you know, the, the crowbars to get the locker off. Mark, yeah. uh, Ron, Ron told him, he goes, wait till Mark gets here. When yeah. Mark got there, Ron said, Mark, take that locker off. He put a towel on the locker, a towel over the, over the locker itself. And he pulled that locker off the hinges. Did he really? We we're sitting there. They go, oh, my goodness. If I've ever said anything to offend you, I want to apologize now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, that was right yeah. when he was the, you know, doing all that strongman stuff. He was at his peak right then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a, um, he's, I think he still holds the record for living, uh, lifting that dumbbell that uh, the Thomas, Thomas Inch. Inch. The unliftable yeah, Thomas dumbbell, Inch. they call it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a great yeah. video on YouTube about that where he – you know, he tried it one year and then he trained for a year and lifted it the next year. It, it's an amazing video. Yeah. 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 Not too many people have been able to, to pick that up. And, and you know, because it's not just the weight, it's the circumference of the actual handle of the dumbbell. I think it's about two and a quarter, two and a half inches around. I think that's right. Um, yeah. So, so your hands like this, you know, it's not like this. It's not closed. You literally have to grip it like that. And uh, he, that's what makes it so difficult to, to pick it up. And he was able to pick it up, and I think he was able to press it. And, he was, and, yeah. He got it, got all, all the way over his head. One of yeah. the they always they always thought that. I think somebody's done it since. I think, but he was the first uh, to do it. They thought it was unliftable. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty incredible. He is, and and and, and in, for his size, you know. And I've always said this, not not being a, not because of being a part of it, but I think probably some of the the most gifted and really amazing athletes all around athletes um in in all of its sports entertainment really quite honestly um i think all of it you know in in, i think the wrestlers are some of those some of those guys are probably some of the best all-around athletes in the world you know um i mean look we talked about billy gunn and in his ability but i mean like vader and you know the size that leon was and his ability to move like he did and then have the physical control that he did to be able to make what he does look so impactful, but at the same time, still be able to protect the other individual and not really injure them. You know, Mark Henry and his size is to be able to move and Brad have that Ryan kind of strength. One time, you know, Brad trained Vader and he, so he mm-hmm. got up there. Here's this big guy, you know, played in the Super Bowl, this big guy. And he goes, well, what can you do that is extraordinary? Just kind of a generic question. You know, Vader walked around on the wrestling mat on his hands. The hands. Really? Brad said he knew then that he had one heck of an athlete that he was about to train. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, it, you I've know. seen Leon walk a basketball court on his hands down one end and back to the other end of, of the basketball court. Really? And this, was, really? this was when he was in pro wrestling. Yeah. Like, I was, yeah. He, was, he was a freak. I mean, Leon is just no other way to describe him, but as a freak, a guy could do anything. And and, yeah. and as you said, Al, uh, have the agility that this big man had and the power, it's scary. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And I think people misunderstand like fans, especially when they, when they hear us say something about agility, they think, you know, I mean, like he does flips or whatever. I mean, he had the agility and the body control and the spatial reasoning to be able to distance, evaluate distance to where he could do the things he did and, and, and still not touch the other individual. He He could do ordinary people's moves and maneuvers that you know a guy that size isn't supposed to be just a, and and andre andre was a lot like that too where he had that athletic ability and you you hit it precise and the control the body control that you got to have to do some of that stuff yeah. and, not hurt, and not hurt your opponent yeah you know? right yeah 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 because uh, you know if if you if you did it you know at, at the end of the day guys wouldn't want to work with you because of the fact that they they were afraid they were going to get hurt so you had to be able to control yourself like that. And, you know, the, the people that over the years that have been professional wrestling, you know, we get knocked a lot, but I think without a question or doubt, we have probably some of the most athletic human beings in, in sports entertainment. There are. Well, you think about it, you think about what sometimes the guys have to do, you know, you have Mm -hmm. to do some type of uh, magnificent entrance. A lot of times for the big shows, you have to wrestle 30, 40 minutes. Then you have to do this long promo that you have to remember. And it's all sure. live, live. And you you only get one take. You know, that's that's, that's right. right. Yeah. And, and during the match, remember, you, might have some, you might have some type of crazy stunt or something. It's live. I yeah. Mean, you, know, you don't Hollywood, get a second choice. Prepare, in Hollywood, they prepare for the stunt. They don't wrestle somebody 15 minutes first, then do a crazy right. stunt, then wrestle 15 more and do a promo and go home. Yeah. I remember uh, Flair, um, uh, Flair's, wasn't it, uh, Jerry, you, you probably know better than I, but I think Flair had like a, a record low heartbeat or something, heart rate. It was like 40 or something like that. He and yeah. Stan Lane, we used to compete over who was going to have the lowest heart rate in the locker room. Yeah, yeah that you was know? a competition between him and Stan. Who, yeah. Who, who that, could get their heart rate to lower. That was kind of like a Carolina thing. I remember Sandy Scott, you mentioned Sandy Scott. Sandy Scott's the yeah. first one that ever told me about that. Because of the athletic commission, Joe, guys go out drinking all night and their heart rate. Right. And they would they would mind control their heart to, to, to slow down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember Holy Flair, boy. you know, <laughs> the only reason I bring it up is because Flair got in an argument at a convention one time. Um, uh, Reggie Jackson was being a little bit of a, a dick to him and was started busting his balls. And, um, you know, Flair was defending himself and brought up about, about the fact that, you know, having a heart rate like that, and you know, Reggie just kind of blew him off, but you know, um, Reggie being Reggie, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, Flair brought up about his heart rate and, you know, you don't have a heart rate, a low heart rate, unless you're an extreme athlete, you know? And that would lend itself to why Flair was able to go, you know, 60 minutes every single night and then go out and <laughs> it's right. three or four in the morning <laughs> and then start it all over the very next day. Yeah. Al how, did, Al, how did you and I end up uh, riding together? Uh, you know, it was at one time it was me, you, and usually Glenn Jacobs uh, came yep. and either Horowitz or I can't remember who else would, <laughs> would fill in. That was Dutch. Remember, it was <clears> – I came in first, and it was um, – I hooked up with Glenn because Glenn and I had been in Tennessee together um, as partners. And Glenn had already kind of been on the loop with Barry Horowitz and Dutch Mantel. 
and then Dutch became your manager. That's and right. You got you got in the car. And remember, and I I saw Barry the other day at a convention, and I brought this up, but he still gets mad about it. Which was <laughs> remember Barry was very regimented, which you think? basically meant <laughs> you think <laughs> it's a nice way of saying he had OCD. <laughs> and uh, remember how he had to always go to, he always had to stop at, at the same time every day at the gas station to get himself a jug of water. And then he would go into the phone booth and he would make a call to his wife. Yep. And the one, yeah. <laughs> never yeah, forget yeah. this. Yeah. The one time he was in the phone booth and you pulled the car up and put the bumper against the door and then just <laughs> laid on the horn. And he flipped out and was literally running back and forth inside the phone booth and couldn't get out. And you just kept the horn going the whole time. He spit and, on the windshield. He oh, was, he he spit, was so oh he's so mad. He I, was was, so I laughed mad. so hard. I was crying. Oh my God. <laughs> and at just one point walking, I'm thinking. He, he looked like a gerbil in a habit trail, just running back and forth. Cause the more you, you, you wouldn't let up on the, he couldn't hear his wife on the phone. He hung the phone up. He's trying to get out. He's yelling at you. He got out spit on the windshield <laughs> yeah yeah oh my god and i'm thinking oh. do i let him out because he's mad <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh my god yeah oh it was so I funny remember the time we oh. were in a gym somewhere and uh i think i think it was venice golds i think it was uh the reason yeah. is who i'm about to say and barry you know he loved to give advice to people so he's telling yes. this woman about how to train legs and stuff, you know, and he's, he's just, you know, he's just being very, he's being helpful. And finally yeah. she tells him, she says, well, my husband, he goes, well, you need to listen to this. Her husband was Tom Platts. <laughs> <laughs> and she's telling Tom Platts' wife, he's telling Tom Platts' wife how to train legs. How to train Godzilla. legs. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> yes. Of course. Why not? Uh I remember he would bury Dutch would rib him nonstop incessantly. One time. And remember, he if you if he spoke to you and you didn't answer him, he would get mad. He'd get upset because you ignored him. Yeah. I remember one time in in up in um, when I first came in, actually up in Edmonton, um, and uh, in, I was rooming with him and Glenn and Dutch, and he came in and started asking Dutch what time they needed to be in the building. Dutch wouldn't answer it. And he got livid and walked out and then wouldn't to punish Dutch. He wouldn't talk to him for the next like two or three days. <laughs> like he wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't talk to him. <laughs> I just thought this is insane. This is a grown man who now is punishing another grown man by not talking to him because he wouldn't talk to him. And I was like, whatever what Dutch, I got myself into whatever Dutch would start with, you know, Barry, you know, <laughs> you know, that doesn't end well. Because Dutch has thought of something that's going to get him going. Oh yeah, yeah. Dude, were you in the night the, the the night in the car when Barry was sitting in the front seat and Dutch kept reaching up and would lick his finger and run him across yes. Barry's glasses. Yeah. Barry had a fit and turned around and threw the jug of water. Dutch, right. Dutch did the typical yeah. wrestling heel thing before. He's no Barry, no, no. It started begging off like, don't do it. <laughs> And Dutch, Barry, Dutch had all that hair. He just looked like a drowned rat. Yeah. Glenn almost wrecked the car from laughing. Uh. Is there anything incriminating there for the next governor of uh, Tennessee? Uh, for Glenn, no, no, nothing. Glenn was always well behaved. 
He was God. He was the good one. Glenn, Glenn was a peacemaker of that group. Glenn, uh, he was. What, what a crew, though, that got tied up there with, with Glenn. You know, I mean, I could just see the big Glenn. Uh, but the best crew. part, Jerry, was Glenn found, like me and Al did, Dutch hilarious. Oh, oh yeah. Dutch would yeah. get Barry, Barry Harlitz going. And Glenn, oh, he would. Just, we would just <laughs> love it. <laughs> it didn't take much to get Barry hot either. I mean, he no. always had to have the bed the furthest from the door in the room. He had to, if, if he was up, everybody was up because he turned every light on in the room. Uh, I remember one night we got to the room before he did, and I purposely unplugged all the lights, and he just <laughs> had a fit and had to plug them all back in <laughs> before he, he could do anything else. Barry stayed with me one time in Texas when we were on a Texas loop, and I uh, come out, and he had like we had a, we had a washer and dryer. We're at my house. But he yeah. washed his he washed his gear and he had it hanging up on all the lampshades in my house. <laughs> yes, on my lampshade. <laughs> yeah, remember, he had to get naked. He'd put his hat on. His That's John right. Hat, put his hair oh, up no. in his John Deere hat, and then he would lotion himself down. Uh, yeah, every time, every That's night. Right. Yeah. That's, That's right. That's not a nice visual, right there. <laughs> Yeah, God bless his heart. I love him, man. He was he was awesome. He was uh, he was harmless, but it was just funny to to watch him do that stuff. Remember in Germany, and I, I'm amazed because now I know of of Jerry's history as far as weak stomach. But do you remember, John, when we went to Germany that first time, and then you, me, and Dutch and Glenn, we went into this um, adult bookstore, and then the objective was to find the grossest uh, video. <laughs> Yeah, and then I came. I came out of the booth dry heaving. That's right. And then every every time I had to relate the story, I'd start dry heaving again because I saw a German Scheitzer video. And then you guys wanted me to tell Jerry on the bus. Jerry never sold it. He just kind of like, well, okay. And I thought, <laughs> now I know. You know, he's got a weak stomach, but I, I was amazed that he never put it over. So still to this day, if I think part. about that it's story, it makes me dry so uh, I lived in Germany. I tagged with Kane over there. That's how I knew Glenn. Right. And, uh, so I, in Hamburg was the, the the red light district, the Reeperbahn. Yep. And uh, yeah. so I took Dutch down there one time. This is, you got to see it. They call it window shopping. You know, the, the working girls would sit in the you know windows. You go down there. So I'm taking Dutch through there. Well, I tell some of the working girls who are coming around because they see Americans. I say, hey, it's my buddy's birthday. I'm buying him whatever he wants. I tell him in German so that they will be all over Dutch. So Dutch is like, what'd you say? What'd you say? And he thinks they're trying to steal his fanny pack. So he's got his little <laughs> fanny pack. He goes, Zip that. And he's telling these women to get away from him. And he's like panicking. There's like all these working girls around him because they think they're about to make a fortune. And finally right. one goes, hey, listen, it's 45 marks for 45 minutes. And Dutch says, I better bring a newspaper. I need something to do the last 44. He <laughs> <laughs> just leaves. Dutch. <laughs> uh, I met some of the best Dutchisms are uh, uh, that boy there. There's two things that boy can't do, Al. I go, what's that? He goes, heel and baby face. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> hey, Al, did you see that? You see that boy's last match? I go, I don't know, Dutch. He goes, well, I sure hope so because that one, that last one was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> he's 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 a one of a kind. 
He one time I was working with Jake overseas and I I go to hit the ropes. I'm going to hit the Dutch on the apron. He's going to grab the rope and, you know, fall down and take a bump down and turn around to a DDT or whatever the finish was. When I hit Dutch, he goes to grab the ropes and he misses it. And he does that Dutch face like (laughs) (laughs) takes a bump off the apron. I thought he was dead. (laughs) There's a big hairy ball on the floor. <laughs> he is Dutch, when, I, when, I would, when I would do the job, Dutch would just go and just put his head on the, on the apron. It was so funny. Al, Dutch Al. is one of the most entertaining guys I've ever been around. We we got one of the most most intelligent too. Yeah, really yeah, smart guy. Yeah. We we got to hear a little bit about the discovery of head uh, and and how oh, that sure. thing developed there. Uh, um, well, um, at the time when I was with WWF, um, I started getting kind of a bad attitude and that was, it was my own fault because I just didn't see the forest for the trees and, um, and, uh, um, I got, was getting frustrated and, um, I tried to quit, I, you know, asked for my release and Bruce Pritchard rolled it over and, uh, which didn't make me any happier at the time. But I knew I knew I had to go someplace to get myself over because uh, if I stayed where I was, it was I was just going to get more of the same. You know, I you know I had to change the perception, so I had to go someplace else. And you know, thanks to Chris Candido, you know, God rest his soul, and and um, you know he was at the time we didn't know nobody knew that Paulie was working with Biz pretty much hand in hand, um, and but Chris was working with Paul and. You know, I went to Chris and Chris went to Paul and Paul went to Bruce and <clears throat> they put me on loan over in ECW. And um, so I just took it upon myself to try to figure out a way to show that I had like a nervous breakdown. Like I had, because um, I figured if anybody, if you were a fan and you only knew WWF, if I was, you know, you saw me as Leaf Cassidy, I figured anybody that was that happy go lucky, something mentally had to be wrong with them. And, um, and if you were one of the ECW fans, you know, a little more where you followed wrestling and stuff, you know that I, at that time I'd been working for 14, 15 years. So I figure that I'd start to get frustrated and start to show the effects. So I tried different things um, to show that I was losing my mind and um, none of them really got over. They didn't click. Um, and um, I was reading a book on abnormal psychology. And um, read a uh, case study about this woman. She had paranoid schizophrenia, and she she had transference disorder, meaning that she um, she transferred her illness onto the objects that she heard voices from. So she thought they were crazy, not her. Um, and um, I thought that was fascinating. And then um, I had gotten done in at the arena there. In ECW arena, I worked with uh, the great Sasuke and then the Japanese photographer, Wally Yamaguchi, uh, Shun, Shun Yamaguchi, not Wally, um, was backstage taking pictures in, for the Japanese magazines. And I was posing with uh, um, great Sasuke and I saw a styrofoam head. And I remembered um, one night it was me, Bob, and uh, Bob Holly and Sid Vicious and Mick Foley. We were all riding in the car together was we were going to a house show in northern california um and um mick had a styrofoam head that he kept his mankind mask on and um um uh, midian 
had uh, from a couple of weeks before had thrown it up in the air and it hit the ceiling fan and cut like a chunk out of its mouth. So Mick was calling it a lane and was like treating it like he was going to do, do things to it in the room. Like he was fish up in the mouth and talking to it. And, um, and I remembered the lady with the case study and I remembered Mick doing that in the backseat of the car. And I had this found this star from that. And I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take this to the ring with me and I'm going to treat it as if it's, it's a real person. And, um, and then I did. And, and I just, you know, I remember Paul would come up all the time. He'd be like, I hate your manager. I hate your manager. And that's all he'd ever really tell me, but he never told me to stop doing it. So I just kept doing it and it started getting more and more over. And, um, and then, uh, just when it looked like he was gonna, uh, he wanted me to do something with it at a, at a show. It was right after we had ran a show. It was around in October and, um, he wanted me to come out and make a save on the Sandman and have a Sandman shirt wrapped around the head or something. And that same night I worked with, uh, uh, what's his name? Max Moon, Paul, uh, from Thunder Bay, um, Paul Diamond. And, uh, he went to give me a gourd buster, like, you know, the front face suplex, my arm got caught up underneath me and completely dislocated my right shoulder. And, um, so I was, I was out, but that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me because, um, I was supposed to work on the November to remember pay-per-view for ECW. And instead of having a match, they just put me in a backstage vignette where, you know, um, I was arguing with the head in the locker room and everybody else was completely normal. And I was the only crazy thing in the thing. And that got over more than anything else. Um, I did. And that's what kicked it all off was that. Thing that, that was a and, merchandising hit too, right? I mean, you saw thousands. Yeah. And what people don't, people, you know, they always, the, what does everybody want? And, you know, it was a double entendre, but I really genuinely, and I never, this was my fault too, because I should have had the conversation with Vince. Um, I, I had, I should have had the conversation with Vince. And that was, when I was doing the, what does everybody want? What does everybody need? if you pay attention, I get more angry as I'm doing it it's because I'm getting jealous of the head. And I was trying to set it up to where I could do an angle where I could turn heel on the head and basically wrestle matches against it. Like it was a real person and, you know, and do the things like you do with everybody where you jump people in the back. And I was going to do all of that with the head. And, um, um, I never discussed it with Vince, but that was the whole, what does everybody want? What does everybody need? What does everybody love? Because here I am, after all these years, I'm still not what everybody wants or needs or loves. It's this head, not me, you know, and people just took it as a double entendre. So still got over. So I, that's all I care about. And then uh, when you come back to WWE, was that, uh, what did Vince think of it? Um, I think I don't really know, you know, again, and that was my fault. I should have had that relationship and I should have had those conversations with Vince and I didn't. And, um, I think he saw the potential for it, but Vince Russo was more the fan of it. Who initially saw it and asked me to send, you know, send in a tape so he could show it to Vince. And I don't think Vince ever really got it or understood it because he was like, well, you know, we're going to get you a head that talks. And I'm like, that's that it shouldn't, it shouldn't talk on its own. The idea is that it won't talk on its own that I think it does. And, um, and I, I don't think, you know, 
I don't think it ever really quite clicked or connected the way it should have. And I should have, I should have really, and I, you know, that's one of the best pieces of advice you could give guys is if you're going to have, you know, any relationship, make sure you have some kind of a relationship with Vince McMahon himself, with the old man, you know, so that you can understand what his vision is. And then you can explain what you're doing and why you're doing it so that he understands it. That's so true, Al. Every one of these young amateur guys that I ever bring into the business, that's the first thing I tell them. I said, you get the opportunity. The first thing you need to do is forge a conversational relationship yeah. with Vince. Whether you it's do. just, hello, how are you doing, or passing in the hall. So eventually he's going to know who you are, and eventually he's going to want to know more about you and what makes you tick. And that's when you that's when you start to get those breaks is when and it's not kissing ass, it's just forming a relationship with the boss. And 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 it's 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 you know invaluable because he's the one, it's his vision, you know what I mean? It's his it's his direction and and that you're trying to execute. And the better you understand what his is and the better he understands how you fit in, the, the more likely you are to be successful, you know. And that was that was a mistake of mine. I, I should have. I should have taken more, you know, but I was raised in a business where it was very much for a long period of time. It was us, the boys, us against them, the office, you know, it was the office and then there were the boys and, you know, the the wrestling business has always been and always will be the wrestler's business, but you know, you can't, one can't survive without the other. And, you know, there was that line and you were always, you know, hey, don't bother them. Don't, you know, go show up, do what you, you're supposed to do, do it well. And, you know, and and um, you go to the ring and, and do what you do there. Don't try to, you know, politic backstage. But it's not politics when it's just it's a necessity that you have those conversations and, and you know, and develop that relationship. Because in that way, you really have the best chance of success. Um you know, and I didn't, and that was, that was, that was one of the mistakes I had made. I should have, I should have known better. Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw are so proud to be associated and sponsored by betterhelp.com. In fact, at betterhelp, that's H-E-L-P.com slash Bradshaw, we're going to give you an offer to get involved. Is there something preventing you from achieving your goals? Is something interfering with your happiness? Is there something that you need in your life to improve? BetterHelp will assist you, your needs, and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Connect in a safe and private online environment. It's that convenient. No need to go somewhere to an office. No need to wait in a room. You start communicating in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. Send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. Again, without having to sit in a waiting room, going to an office, it's all done securely online. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide. Find the particular expertise you need. Don't limit yourself to the counselors located near you. You suffer from depression, stress, anxiety, anger, family conflicts, sleeping. Betterhelp.com 
can be the answer. Anything you share is confidential, convenient, professional, affordable. Check out the testimonials posted on their site, betterhelp.com. In fact, so many people have used BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a healthier and happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash Bradshaw. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Bradshaw. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Time to tell you about something I'm super passionate about protecting your family. Yes, this is a life insurance ad for goliathlife.com. But to me, this is really about peace of mind. Think about insurance for a second. We all get medical and auto insurance, yet we never even know if we're going to have a need for it. Let me let you in on a little secret. You need life insurance. We're all going to die. Now, as you let that reality sink in, think about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow. If you don't have a plan for that, you need to visit goliathlife.com. And I mean, right now, and just personally, I've lost two friends in their forties this past year and a half. And I don't even want to think about what their families would be going through. Had they not had life insurance. If you don't have it, get it, protect your family. And I suggest you go to goliathlife.com because they've made the process of getting affordable life insurance. Super easy. Goliath life streamlines the life insurance process by allowing you to get quotes for more than 20 carriers within minutes. And you'll pick your terms and payments to fit your budget. You pick your price. You start the online application immediately and even schedule the medical exam to come to you. And I've done it. They sent someone to my office. I skipped the phone calls, the paperwork and the crazy invasive conversations. Goliath life makes buying life insurance simple. There's no hidden fees, no upsells, no hassle, hell, not even a phone call. Goliath life is life insurance in your hands on your time. Get multiple quick quotes right now from the comfort of your own home and begin your application in a few easy clicks right now at goliathlife.com. Now, as we move forward, uh, you, you, you talk about really progressive, really forward thinking. With the, you and your schools out out uh, out in Ohio Valley now, you you mm-hmm. open up satellite schools in different countries and, and things like yeah. that. And not only that, you've been you've been a real pioneer on getting your school certified as a genuine trade school, which I think is yeah. remarkable. John and I just spoke about yeah. that briefly today. It's a brilliant idea what you're doing, and you're teaching the skill. Yeah, I'm. I'm trying to teach them the a lot of things that have been lost over the years. You know, um, I'm trying to teach them how to actually work, not wrestle or perform, but how to actually work. You know, and to understand what a work is. That you know, I think that term in itself has gotten lost. You know, uh, when we were when all three of us were brought into the business, working a match was 
was convincing the audience of, of the, you know, that, that, that outcome was real, that, you know, not what you did was real, but why you did it, you know, that you were out there trying to use it to beat the guy so that you could make money because you were a prize fighter. And, um, you know, I want, I try to get the guys to really understand that concept that they're not selling that they're injured. They're selling the intent that's done to them or that they're doing to someone else. And the more convincing they can be, the more believable they can be, um, then the more likely they are to get people to want to spend money to see them. Because at the end of the day, I don't care how great an athlete you are. If you cannot get people to believe in who you are and why you're doing it, they're not going to pay to see you. Simple as that. You know, if they don't pay to see you, then there's no asset. What's that? I've told Jerry this before about uh, Killer Tim Brooks. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. Killer, you know, tagged with Brody over in Japan. He was a tough guy, you know, but he wasn't yeah. an arm drag guy. So one of the first times I ever met uh, what you know later would call Smart Mark, he was talking about yeah. work work rate, and he said, "You know that Killer Tim Brooks? He's just terrible. His work rate's awful." It was the first time I'd ever heard the term, and I said, yeah. well, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, he can't put matches together." I said, "Let me ask you a question. If you brought Stan Hansen in." to wrestle Killer Tim Brooks at the Sportatorium, would you pay to see that? He goes, I'd pay double. I said, you're right. He's not a good worker. <laughs> yeah. Know, that's the essence I've heard that of term it. too. You know, it's a guy, Killer Killer drew you in. You believed mm-hmm. in Killer. You know, he wasn't an armor yeah. guy, but he drew money. He drew money because you knew this was a tough, tough <laughs> old man. But that, and that really, even to this day, like the reason that Steve Austin got over as well as he did was because he, you could believe, you could believe the guy could kick somebody's ass. You could believe in Vince McMahon as a heel. You could believe in when you had that run as a heel, you know, you're, I tell people all the time between Vince and you, you were the last real heels we've had in this business. And you're it that they're, they're no more because nobody knows how to be a heel or that your job as a heel is not to, get yourself over it's to get the baby face over because if you don't get that baby face over you can't draw heat and if you don't draw heat you don't draw money you know um and we just don't have that anymore you know we have lots of performers but we don't have workers and you know uh, there was there had always been even when i broke in in 82 i mean the, the the mantra was you know wrestlers don't make money workers do and you endeavor to be a great worker not a great wrestler you know and, uh, you know, they, you've got to be convincing and you have to be believable and you have, and if people can believe in who you are, like you could believe in killer Tim bricks, you could believe in who that guy was. And that was what made you now believe in anything he did, you know? Um, and, and, you know, if you go down the list of guys that drew money, um, you know, to any degree in this business, it was because of the fact that you could believe in who they were. Um, that was what allowed you to then believe in everything they did. And, yeah, it's, and it's, what, it's the most invaluable thing that a, a wrestler can, can develop. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's one of the, that's one of the things that's lost in people. You know, they want to get, this is awesome chance. They want to get, they want yeah. to talk about work rates. And, and you yeah. know, to me, a match that leaves everybody on their feet, that's a great match. Yeah. And yeah. not many people can do that. And you see guys, you know, do all the flips and all the different stuff that they do. And, to me, that's not – I get it, and it's magnificent, yeah. and it's athletic as it can be. But the question is, does it draw money? And a lot of it doesn't. Yeah. No, it doesn't. And and the reason – it's not because of it being just a flip. It's because it's not done 
at the right time for the right reason within the context of that you're using that to try to gain and then maintain an advantage so that you could potentially possibly win. You know, I tell guys all the time, especially here in OVW, like, I don't care what you do. You know, you can, you can throw a bag of cats on each other. All I care about is why did you do it within the context of trying to win and trying not to lose? For instance, like, you know, um, you know, doing dives, Hey, dive your happy ass off. I don't care, but let's be honest. If it were real, a real competition where, where if you won or lost dictated your ability to whether you paid rent. Okay. Cause that's what the stakes are. The only two reasons you'd ever dive out of the ring on somebody is either you're angry enough to do it or you're desperate enough to do it. Well, Hey, work the match in such a way that when you do that, the audience gets why you did it, that you were angry enough to do it or you were desperate. And it was a hail Mary attempt to change the course of the match so that you could potentially go on to win it. You know, don't just do it to do it because you're taking an enormous risk physically, legitimately a risk that you could have a life altering or life ending injury. One of the two of you could from doing it. And, and you're going to get a, this is awesome chant or a holy shit chant, as opposed to people standing on their feet and going, Oh my God, what's going to happen next? I mean, that's insane, but that's what they're being directed to do now by, by people that claim they're experts in the wrestling business that have never done it for a living in any way, form or fashion. And are now are dictating to the talent themselves. Hey, this is what's good. And this is what's bad. And the talent are listening. What a description you just gave, gave and, and, you know, uh, do it. Uh, just for this, for instance, Undertaker did one dive in his life on pay-per-views. That was a yeah. WrestleMania. And that yeah. dive is still talked about today. He didn't do 50 dive to set that up. He was in a situation that you described was desperation, and he felt it yeah. would change the course of, of, of the match. And it did. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that's the proper timing. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, and, you know, the same, you'll see a lot of young heels or, well, they claim they're heels, you know, they'll, they'll do things where they, they'll cheat directly in front of the referee. And it's like, listen, you'll, you, if this were real, you'd never cheat in front of the referee, take that chance that you get disqualified. The only reason you'd ever do that is if you're desperate enough or you're angry enough that you've forgotten yourself and that you're now taking that risk, you know, so don't just do things just to do things, you know, Think about them in a terms like you're a real prize fighter and, and, and the stakes of not winning this match are your ability to be able to pay rent or buy your groceries this week, you know, and uh, not, not just. Like, just just like it. Orrin Hart just said, you know, he wouldn't sit there and do that. He'd break out into an Indian war dance and chop. <laughs> 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 That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Owen was awesome. Uh, Remember the I, night we I were in Boston. The thing I hate the most. Thing I hate the most is when a heels will out promo a baby face. Yeah, it, yeah, it they get over. nuts. You know, I, I would, I would never out promo a baby face. Not that I was great at it or anything else, but I, I knew enough to, that I would give the other guy the zinger. And let I could him deliver it, and I could leave him speechless. But if I did, what does that do to the angle? It kills it. I mean, it kills him yeah. as a baby face, and it kills yeah. me as a heel. It makes me cool, yeah. and it makes me yeah. feel good. Like, oh, you see what I said to so-and-so? Which is, great if we're pushing you, which is great if we're pushing you as a baby face, but we're trying to get heat on you. So, you know, your job's not to look cool. Your job's to make him look that much cooler so that then you can, you know, get that heat and draw some money, you know. 
Um, and I was, uh, I was just about to bring up Owen. Do you remember the night we were in Boston? Remember him and Blackman when he was blue, blue blazer and he and Blackman would travel together and he would purposely get lost when he was driving the car. So he'd make Steve wear the blue blazer mask. Remember we had just come back from Thanksgiving break and remember Blackman always liked to get thrown over the rope and then he'd skin the cat, which took forever for him to skin the cat to come back. But he always wanted to do the spot. And remember the spot was Owen would throw him over the top rope. And he'd skin the cat. Owen would turn his back. And when he'd turn around, Steve would do a roundhouse kick, you know, and Owen would duck it. And then they'd, you know, they'd go do their other moves, right? And that, that night, remember, because we had monitors backstage and fucking Owen threw him over and then stood there with his hands on his hips as he watched Steve get back in the ring. <laughs> yeah. And then Steve threw the kick and Owen forgot to duck. And Steve kicked him in the face and knocked him completely yes. out. Yes. And Steve panicked and started to take his mask off. I remember Timmy Mike's going, no, no, just cover him. Just cover him. Yeah, yeah you've won. Uh, cover him. You, you've won. You beat him. And then when Owen came to the back, he's like, oh, hey, guys, I'll see you guys when we get back from Thanksgiving. And I'm thinking, we just got back from Thanksgiving. Owen, where are you at? <laughs> I remember one time we were up in Canada. Uh, one of Joe LaDuke's nephews or something. It was like his first or second match in the business. And he couldn't yeah. run the ropes. He was not, you know, he just wasn't good at it. You know, he couldn't do it. Yeah. So they tell Owen, whatever you do, don't let him run the ropes. Okay. Just kind of take care of him. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh my yeah. God. First thing Owen did, Owen locks up and goes, crisscross and they make the kid run back and forth and Owen would go across and he'd look then he'd run he'd look it was it was so bad George Steele was so mad uh. <laughs> <laughs> Owen Owen was uh. so good because he didn't care if it was Wrestlemania or, yeah. or if it was Booth Bay Maine he, yeah. he felt like screwing around he screwed yeah. around Remember the night in Kuwait when he and Steve Austin went out and they had that match where they overemphasized everything they did and and all the boys were in the back just on the floor pissing themselves laughing because he was just, it was ridiculous. That Kuwait was when uh, Gerald Briscoe got double chicken winged by Stone Cold, wasn't it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was. Yes. Yes. Uh, Yeah, we had some fun. That's for sure. No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You, You chicken winged him, didn't you? Yeah, he tried to oh, no. damn Texas jump me, so I just I did I did I did the double wing chicken wing. Yeah, that's, that. that's yeah, 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 yeah. Steve so, Rose, yeah. remember it was a fifty yard walkway. Uh, yes, yeah. all, the back, all the way back, and Steve rode the entire way. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, you guys, you guys have been picking on me for what we were there—seven days, eight days, or yeah, seven road. days. Yeah, and yeah. every night getting out of the ring because I had to set a ringside and do reports and all that. So, Every time you guys get out of the ring, you guys would pick on me. So I just had my fill of Stone Cold was kicking my ass every night. Every night. So finally I said, man, I got to do something. It's the last night. What are they going to do? You know, last night. I hid. I hid because it was an elevated ramp. So I hid down in the, on, on the bottom of the ramp there. When Steve got by me, I jumped up on the ramp. Now I'm thinking too, all of a sudden, when I jump up on a ramp, all those people from Kuwait, they kind of close in. Like, who is this guy? I wonder what's he, cause they, you know, I, I'm not on TV or anything. 
And Steve filled me, turned around, I kick him, I double arm suplex him. From there, he starts rolling, kick me, and I kicked him. <laughs> he rolled the entire way back. <laughs> and we laughed, man. It was so fun. Uh, do you so remember the, got the hottest guy in the history of the business and Gerald Briscoe chicken wing suplex. <laughs> chicken wing suplex. Yeah. I can just see the report. Well, Steve got hurt. Well, how did Steve get hurt? Well, I <laughs> suplexed him off the damn ramp and they broke his neck. Yeah. <laughs> so Steve's out remember there. In, remember that term? Remember that time in Germany when the German ring announcer and you and every time Undertaker made his ring in the ring entrance, the lights would go off, and you guys would Jerry, you guys would jump him and beat the shit out of him. Yeah. <laughs> the lights would come back on, and he's yeah. just laying there in the ring, like yeah. beat up, <laughs> like for nineteen days straight. Remember, you guys, every time the lights went off, you'd jump him. And we're beat not the supposed shit to tell those stories out. <laughs> <laughs> He loved now, it. You know, yeah. I was into it. We're in South Africa one time, and Barry Wyndham says, let's jump Briscoe at the end of this, because everybody wanted to jump Briscoe at ringside. So I said, right. Right. I said, I'll hit him low, you hit him high. He goes, get him, kid, get him, kid. So we come yeah. out of the ring, we wrestled like Furnace and LaFon. I'm blown up. We've been out every single night. So Jerry's right. there. I get around, I wrap his legs, and I'm waiting for Barry to come by and clean his clock. I said, we're going to take out yeah. Oki man. We're going to get Oklahoma. <laughs> and as soon as I got his legs, I'm waiting for Barry to hit him. And I look, and I see Barry walking by. He had double-crossed him. <laughs> I go, oh, no, no. And then I go, yep. oh. here we go. <laughs> I can't breathe. I'm tapping out at ringside. <laughs> I actually did that that nose job to Triple H one time, and I still don't get to the bottom of his nostrils. You know, I was up there. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. He of jumped, those. he jumped me getting out. Him and Owen, you know, they 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 were going to jump me one night, and Owen did the same thing to him. You know, he 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 left him in a and then double crossed him. Yeah, double crossed him. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, that's so much fun back then. Oh my God! Well, Al, before we go, I got I, we got to ask you a little yeah. bit about Tough Enough. Uh, your Tough Enough sure. was, was so cool. I thought the premise, though, I've heard you talk about this before. The reason I'm bringing this up, I thought the premise was tough on these guys. You know, the reason is yeah. you bring these guys in who don't know the business, and then all sure. of a sudden they get all this TV exposure. Then you're expecting them to go into the ring and wrestle against guys who've been wrestling for 15 years. Sure. You know, yeah. because the worst thing for a young guy is we all know you don't want to learn on national television. You want to learn in, you know, house shows. You want to learn on live events on regional television. You know, I just thought it was a the the concept was good, but sure. making it work I thought was tough. I thought that's kind of what happened with uh with Peter. It was um, you know, and like even when you know, we we were, I was training Peter, I was and I would tell all the guys like, "Listen, winning this seems like a great blessing, and to a degree it is." I said, but you, you understand if they're going to give you a million dollars, now they're going to have a million dollars worth of expectations. And you guys just aren't going to be prepared no matter what we do in the length of time that we have together. There's no way that I could possibly prepare you to where you can live up to those expectations and be able to draw, uh, you know, a return on that kind of an investment. You know, um, for some of you, it's going to be a blessing that you don't get to win right away. And then you can always build your career and come back in later, you know, and, um, and that was the case with Nowinski and that was the case with Josh Matthews. And that was the case, you know, Kenny Lane went on to have a, a, a great career, you know, um, you know, in ring of honor and other places around the, you know, around the wrestling business. Um, you know, and for Pewter, it was, you know, much the same situation. Hey, and look, even, 
you know, Morrison, you know, he didn't, you know, he, he it takes so much time. Like we had, Jerry and I, in what we were talking about before, you know, um, it takes years to really learn and understand and to know what works for you, why it works for you and, and how to use it to become an attraction and become a draw. And I, and, um, it, it was the tough enough was a great vehicle to expand the audience base because there were, you know, tons of people still to this day. Hey, I didn't watch wrestling, but I watched tough enough. And then after I watched tough enough, I started watching wrestling and my wife didn't watch it. And she now what, then she started watching wrestling because of tough enough. And it was a great uh, tool to scout for new talent, but it, you know, the best thing that could have been done and should have been done is, um, is to bring those you know young kids in um, kind of the way that we used to, which is bringing them in and having them, start at the very bottom um, and, and beat them, beat them, beat them. And then once in a while, give them a win so that it keeps the interest of the audience, but then send them someplace like they used to, down, you know, they sent Maven and they sent Miz and they sent Morrison down here to OVW and let those guys learn in an environment to where they're not on a national stage and they can make mistakes and they can get that polish and then bring them up. And then, you know, and then, let give them the push, but you know, don't give them the push straight off of MTV. I, you know, I know that, that the reason they did that was to try to capitalize on the, on the audience, but you can put them in there and you can push them without letting them win. Um, because you know, even the most casual wrestling fans could understand and see that these guys are green as grass and they're not going to have a chance to really, unless it's an upset victory, they're not going to have a chance to go on some kind of major win streak and work their way to the title. And granted, there's always an exception to every rule, but that pretty much played itself out in, in every circumstance with those with those kids, you know. Yeah, and um, it's, made it's amazing what Miz did, you know, to be able to mm-hmm. – people don't understand. You know, by the time we got to WWE, it was kind of like uh, a pro football player. You know, you'd sure. already gone through middle school, you'd gone through high school, you'd gone through college. We'd gone through all these territories, and we'd all had been something somewhere. Yeah. You know, doesn't mean yeah. we're going to succeed in WWE, but we'd all been champions somewhere. We'd main event yeah. somewhere. You know, these guys just get stuck out there and go, okay, uh, good luck. And that's, Sink or that's swim. tough. Yeah. Yeah. Sink or swim. And that's, to, that's kind of what I try very hard to with OVW now is, you know, we, we, I purposely produce a live television show every single week. And the only, the only reason I do that is because for younger talent to have a place to where their first experience on live TV is not when they get to WWE, because that's the last place you want that to be your first experience on live TV, you know, and I don't need to tell you guys live TV from post-produced TV are two different animals and you need to know how to behave and how to operate and maximize your time. Um, to its fullest, because if you don't, you're not going to get much of an opportunity to do it very often after that. Um, so I purposely try to give that experience because, you know, they can have uh, as much information as they want, but if they don't have the real hands-on experience, they're never going to properly develop. They're never going to properly grow to where they're now worthy of the the massive investment that WWE makes in them when they give them an opportunity to be on that stage. And I, I make it clear to all the talent that this is a matter of, it's, you know, when you, it's not a job, you're not being hired. 
by WWE. So he can't be fired. I love that new term. Well, they, they fired so-and-so. He's a talent. He can't be fired. You know, you're as a wrestler, as a, as a, as a performer, um, you are a business. You're an independent entrepreneur. And excuse me for a second. I got to hang this up. Oh, who is? All right. Uh, uh, sorry. Stan. All right, Stan. Yep. Okay, Stan. Yeah, it was. Sorry. Yeah, I'm getting calls and stuff, and and, and inevitably that happens. Um, but you, you know, I'm trying to tell. Uh, I want to. I want to build a a place where young talent can come and get experience, get exposure, and get an understanding of what the real business is. And then I want a place where older talent can come and reinvent themselves. And both can make a living doing this without having to have another secondary job, which they can. And they're, they're not going to get rich, but they're, they're going to be able to feed their families and do this for a living and be able to develop uh, to where they are now worthy of a, an investment by a WWE. You know what I mean? And, and can hit the ground running and, and be focused on not critical acclaim of their match, but on the real gauge of what a wrestler success is. And that is uh, how, what kind of a house did you draw? You know, not, did you have a five-star match, but did you sell out the building to see you? Well, now you're a success. And, um, and I, we, I went through great, it took about two and a half years to get uh, accredited by the state office of proprietary education as a trade school. Um, You know, and one of the arguments I used was, is that we're not, this isn't a boxing gym. It's not a mixed martial arts gym. This is a wrestling trade school because I'm not teaching these people um, just how to wrestle. I'm teaching them skills to pursue a vocation, to pursue a career where they could quite literally make life-changing money if they get the right opportunity and have the right amount of experience at the time coupled with that opportunity to really exploit that opportunity to its fullest and really get a good run. You know, um, and and that ultimately is what why it's it's you know we're the only accredited as a trade school, um, professional wrestling training center in the world, and and I I truly think of it as secondary education. As you know, you're not just learning how to wrestle; you're learning how to learning skills to to pursue a career. And um, are there you know, any government advantages by being a trade school more so than yeah? Being once. We, once we get accredited, we have to get accredited. We're accredited by the state office of proprietary education as a trade school, but we now need to get accredited by one of the uh, accreditation groups. Like there's different accreditation groups for nursing schools and for plumbing and for, you know, different types of trade schools. We need one of those to now recognize us. And then we need to have that accreditation for a minimum of two years. Once we have that accreditation for a minimum of two years, we can um, then we're entitled to apply for um, um, financial aid, um, the GI Bill, um, uh, every you know uh, scholarships, uh, all of those kinds of things. We can now apply for for student aid, and then if we are, I think it's four or six years, and dependent upon our uh, placement, our success rate of of individuals that have went through the school. Um, we can then be designated as an actual university. 
for professional wrestling, sports entertainment, and broadcasting. That's awesome. Um, yeah. And so we're not trying to, I'm not trying to just teach, you know, the in-ring stuff, which we are. Um, we're also trying to teach them how to operate a camera, lighting, sound, um, product, you know, produce, producing, directing, live event management, um, business management, because, you know, I don't need to tell you guys this. I mean, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, you know, their careers in the ring are going to come to an end. And if, if I can give them skills that one, make them better prepared in the ring as a performer, but also on the on offset, when they get to a certain age where they can't perform anymore, they now can still be an asset in the business and still have a career around the wrestling business backstage. Um, and so, you know, we try to teach them other skills besides just, Hey, here's how you take a bump and here's a high spot, things like that. You know, it's, here's how, here's the lighting. Here's, here's how you shoot the camera. And when you're on live TV, here's what cameras you need to look at and how you need to perform for those cameras, as opposed to just the audience in the building and just all those kinds of things. Yeah, And, and you know, I, I follow closely, you know, down here at Booker T, you know, he's got a, he's an organization mm -hmm. that used to do it really well. James Beard's sure. SWE and they're now world-class. I think they, they've had some name changes. But business is great right now. I mean, yeah. you see a real resurgence, maybe because we're coming out of COVID and people are willing to do things, or maybe just because it's more interesting now because you got so many more options. How's business with OBW? It's going really well. Um, it's it's really we started doing really well prior to COVID. We, you know, because it takes so long to build up an audience. Um, but then COVID hit and we we got waylaid. And then this past, I'd say summer through the fall really started picking up and started turning around and um, you know, and, and the houses are starting to come back up and, and you're right. And and listen, history repeats itself. You know, we have cyclically, we've seen professional wrestling go from a national operation to a regional operation to a national. I don't think it'll ever go back to where it's just what it used to be, but I do think that there will be a home for regional or, territorial areas where they can be developed and, and people can make a living um, wrestling on a regular basis and preparing themselves and, and potentially getting an opportunity with a bigger platform like WWE. Um, and when they do um, not showing up there, you know, cause uh, showing up there and just wanting to show how, how good they can wrestle, but actually that they can be a star and that they can capitalize um, on that platform to its fullest extent. And WWE can then also capitalize on the talent to its fullest extent as well. Yeah, and that that's, thing is such a key about being a star. You know, you look at a guy like Riddle, and mm -hmm. Riddle is, I always can kind of compare him to Hot Rod, you know, eccentric, yeah. you know, but he draws interest, just like Hot Rod. Sure. And I mean, this yeah. kid is... But he's different, you know, and that's what to me was what you got to be in this business. You got to be a star. If you're, you know, I always hate Absolutely. when you have a top guy who looks one way and everybody tries to look the same way. You yeah. know, look, look different because that's the only way you're going to get over because otherwise you're just an imitation. And that's what's so hard about this business. You know, you need stars. You need, yeah, Brock Lesnar's one of a kind, but you need guys like Brock. You need guys like Riddle. You know, it's just, yeah, that's, it's easier said than done, I know. And, and they have to be a star no matter where they are in the car, you know? Exactly. And I think that was one thing why we were so successful on that run back in the attitude era is that, you know, part of being a star is being able to have an audience be able to describe you in a sentence or less. 
You know what I mean? To where you can go, there's this guy, you got to watch wrestling, there's this guy or this girl, and they're A, B, C, D, E. If they can describe you in a sentence or less, know who you are, what you stand for, why they like you or why they dislike you, that's it. You're, you're going to draw money. If you're one of those people that's nondescript, to where we can't really figure you out or really give a, give a, a description to you, then we can't sell you. And if we can't sell you, you're not going to get over. And if you're not going to get over, you're not going to draw us money. It doesn't matter how good a wrestler you are, you know, like, a, you know, you can describe a Brock Lesnar, you know, in a sentence or less. You could drive, you could describe Steve Austin. You could describe The Undertaker. You could describe Vince McMahon, you know, every, you think about everybody that's drawn money, you could describe in a sentence or less. And that's why they were able to draw money. And that, and that's, in, that's the most valuable thing that anyone can ever develop in this business is that um, ability to have, be able to be described in a sentence or less. Yeah. And one of the hardest things to do. Right. Well, yes. Yes, it is. Yes. Well, Al, I, it's been such a pleasure catching up with you. I, I know we kept you. Yeah. Long. We, for those that don't realize, we, we spent about 20, 30 minutes before the show talking too. So <laughs> yeah, we did. That's what we love about it. It, this it was is, awesome though, man, because it's uh, so great. I haven't seen you guys in years. I miss you guys. It's good friends really catching good. up. Yeah. I tell guys all the time, like conventions are there for the fans, but for us, it's like oh. a family reunion, you know, yeah. because quite honestly, we spent more time with each other back in the day than we did with our own families, you know, yeah. being on the road, we were, we were with each other more than we were with, with our wives and kids. And so when you get to see, you know, you get to see some of the old, bo- old, old gang, see some of the boys, it's like, man, that's, that's, it's so awesome to get to talk and hang yeah. out and have a chat with you guys. It you really is. I appreciate you, you having what, me on. You know what we found out, Alan, it's so great to have you on. And when Don and I talked about when you were getting you on when we could, and man, it was, it's a thrill, but you know what we're finding out now? We're we're getting back to some shade of uh, a normalcy. Here. Just, yeah. You know, going through going through our business. You know, we all we all we all use this quote: "I hate people. I hate people." And yeah. all of a sudden, you're isolated and you're totally away from people. Sure, yeah. And you yeah. realize then right. just how much you need people to be around. And that's a read. That's one of the that's uh, right. reasons how John and I started this stuff because we got bored with each other and we, hey man, yeah. Let's do something, you know. Yeah. Let's, let's do something. That's bullshit. You know? Well, that's exactly it's right. Awesome. You know, when you're when you're in the locker room every single night with the same guys, you're going. I just want to go home. I just want to go fishing. Right. Never see these guys again. Then you don't see them because of COVID. You're like, I really miss them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the truth. That's right. We're all family, man. We all kept travel that road together. You know, we we had the hard time. We are. I'm Joe. So, man, it's great. Some of the most. Here. It's probably the biggest, most dysfunctional family we've got, but it, but it, we are. It works. I mean, it works. Okay. We, we would shit on each other to no end, and then as soon as one of the a fan or something went to go to do something to somebody else, we'd all just come right over and like, hey, what are you doing? You know. All right. And I remember, you I, one, I, you I remember all. we were up in Canada. I think we're Canada. We're in a toll booth, and I'd hit you and, and Blackman, I think it was, from behind. In the oh, car. in the rear end, yeah. And yeah. Yeah, rear end, of going down the road. You know, guys are yeah. we, hit each other going 70 miles an yeah. hour down the road. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy that is. So I hit you guys, and we get up to the toll booth, and you reversed your car, right, just backed right into me. Like, you're yeah. trying to hit me so hard, my, my, my airbag would come I was out. trying to pop your like, airbags. Oh, no, and I'm stuck now. I've got a car behind me. You pull up, you bash him up. Okay, okay. I tap, I tap, I, tap. I quit. <laughs> Yeah. I remember that we were, I remember one time it was, we were, you and Ron were, 
um, what I think it was Detroit or something. We pulled in and you came in behind us. And me, he started panicking. <laughs> like, he's like, it's trying to run. Oh, they're going to rear end us. You got to speed up. You got to speed up. <laughs> Don't let them see us. Don't let them see us. <laughs> Paul, Bear us on the road. Kane, Paul Bear made Kane pull over one time. He goes, I'll walk the rest of the way. He goes, I know they're behind us. <laughs> he's like seven miles. Clans <laughs> like, Person, you can't walk. It's come yeah. on. <laughs> it's the dead of winter. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, Al, you guys thanks awesome. again, my friend, and uh, I can't wait. Thank to you guys. Al, I'm here. so proud of you. I'm so glad about uh, OBW and all the things you're doing. I think it's just absolutely wonderful. I think it's a brilliant idea to get to become a trade school. Um, so thank happy you. for all your success and and thanks thank for you. Join, and thanks for joining us. Thank you guys. Let's, let's just not let it be so long next time. I'd love to see you guys. Sure. Thank you.